Are you still planning to leave for India? I have my sister's blessing, as well as my mother's. And the Queen herself has apparently saved our families from utter ruin. You love your family dearly. As much as you love yours. I was fearful of losing you. It is why I could not visit you after your accident. I could not bring myself to. I love you. I have loved you from the moment we raced each other in that park. I have loved you at every dance, on every walk, every time we've been together and every time we've been apart. You do not have to accept it. You do not have to embrace it or even allow it. Knowing you, you probably will not, but you must know it in your heart. You must feel it because I do. I do not think there is anything else to say. Other than I love you too. I want a life that suits us both. I know I am imperfect, but I will humble myself before you because I cannot imagine my life without you. And that is why I wish to marry you. You do know there'll never be a day where you do not vex me. Is that a promise, Kathani everybody Bradley here and welcome back to another episode of let's dive deep today we are diving deep into the finale of the hit Netflix series Bridgerton by taking a look at the eighth and final episode of season two entitled the Viscount who loved me which is also the title of the second book which this season was based on as always, Let's Dive Deep contains adult content. In the last episode, we had some sexy times between Kate and Anthony. And in this episode, we have some more sexy times between Kate and Anthony. If you do not wish to hear me talk about or to listen to a podcast that talks about those sexy times between Kate and Anthony, now is a good time to click off the podcast. As it is the finale of the second season, there is no way for me to spoil anything because this is the last episode. However, I will be talking about the plot of season three, which was announced on Netflix and Twitter and everything. So we do know who is going to be in season three, who's coming back, who's not, what the general story is going to be. And so I will be talking about that. So if you want to like not know anything about season three of Bridgerton until it comes out on Netflix, I would be a little careful. I won't be like diving too deep into it because we don't have a ton of details, but if you you want to know nothing about it i can't promise that this podcast won't talk about some of the details of season three of bridgerton at least the ones that are publicly available not that i know any undercover secret ones anyways 
And finally, before we get started today, you guys have been amazing. So, 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 so amazing at those reviews lately. There's a ton of five-star reviews on Spotify. There's quite a few of them on Apple and whatever, Apple Podcasts or whatever it's called as well. And I appreciate that so much. Don't forget to, to, to like those podcasts, subscribe, leave those reviews. It's very, very helpful. Um, as we've gone through season two, the podcast just keeps picking up more and more steam. And that's thanks to you guys with your word of mouth and the reviews and everything, getting it out to more people. So I definitely appreciate that. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more about it in a second, but we are going to start doing a Bridgerton book club in between seasons where I am going to read the first two Bridgerton books to kind of hold us over until season three. And um, that's going to happen in this podcast theme, but it will also happen over on the Patreon. And the Patreon's a little, it's like a little tip jar of sorts where you can leave a couple of bucks there for me to pay for like the hosting fees of the podcast and everything. And over there, you get access to the show notes, to early access to the podcast, and to a few little bonuses over there. It's not much. It's basically just like a glorified tip jar with a few little bits of bonus content over there however i do appreciate so so much the people that are over there um the amount on the patreon has now eclipsed the podcasting fees for the month which is great and really helps make things sustainable on my end which is just fantastic so i appreciate you all so so much otherwise i think that's it that's all we have an email address let's dive deep pod at gmail.com send your emails there we have a twitter account at let's dive deep I think, though, it is time that we talked about the finale of Season 2, Episode 208, The Viscount Who Loved Me. Am I like him at all? Or was he more like you? Father? He was, um... He was like both of us, really. He had my seriousness, perhaps. He shared your love of a prank. Did he? He once put glue in Benedict's shoes. <laughs> I wish I could have played a prank on him. I wish I did. Episode 208, The Viscount Who Loved Me, written by Jess Brownell, who I believe is going to be the showrunner for season three, which is pretty interesting, and directed once again by Cheryl Dunyer. I'm going to give this episode an 8.2. Now, I know you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, that's pretty good, and then thinking to yourself, wait a second, that's worse than episode six, the wedding episode that I hate. I realize I'm the only person on earth that enjoyed that episode. It's fine. I understand that. I will stand proudly and defend. I will defend the content of the episode. I will not defend the concept of the episode. I hope those two things are uh, kind of distinguishable from one another. But 8.2, very respectable score, very enjoyable finale, certainly a better finale and kind of end to the season than season one was. I don't even know what I rated it at the end of season one, but the kind of landing of the plane just went a lot more smoothly this time around. And I think an 8.2 is fair enough for that. The things that I liked, well, the big thing that I needed to like all season felt very satisfying, and that was the resolution to Kate and Anthony. I will admit to being very, very frustrated at points of this episode and of this season, kind of just, you just want them to be together, and you just know they're going to be, so all the obstacles kind of feel, it kind of feels like you're reading a thriller book or a thriller novel, and like, you keep getting more information, but you never quite get to the point a little bit, so I will admit to feeling slightly like that at points in this season, however, I will 
will say um, the way Kate and Anthony were written and paced, I, I felt it was really well done. The resolution was satisfying. And that was the main thing I needed out of a finale to season two was to feel like that story was one that I enjoyed and one that I, I, I was satisfied with at the end of it. And I absolutely was. So all of the Kate and Anthony stuff, um, parts of it were better than others, but mostly very, very well done. And I enjoyed that. After the uneloquent use of like rain, maybe I am, maybe I'm just like kind of jaded by it and I'm misremembering how it went down in season one. But in season one, you kind of needed a reset. We'll talk about this in the things I didn't like, but you kind of needed a, a reset to get everyone like back on track. And it was like the rain or whatever in season one. And that really sucked. And it was like, I just felt like there was no way that they went from like so mad at each other to like happy and in love and having a kid is considering all the other stuff that happened. It just didn't feel kind of real to me. I enjoyed, they had to do the same thing again. And we'll talk about that again in the things I didn't like. However, the kind of subtlety and eloquence of using Kate's fall as the reset is much more well done. In the instant reaction that I did with Mia, we kind of talked about it. It's very clever. You need a way to reset Kate and Anthony so that they can get married. You need a way to reset Set everyone else's opinions of them and you need a way to reset Edwina's kind of hatred of Kate so that she can kind of at least support this match in some way or another and Kate falling and you know being in like whatever sleeping beauty coma she was in is a good way to do that that just worked better for me than whatever resetting system they used in in season one so I'm putting that in the things I liked because it was just much more well done and I feel like they learned something from season one which I can appreciate. And finally, I heard a lot of feedback online about this stuff. Now that I now that I can't be spoiled, I'm just all over the internet, which is going to be a whole other thing that we talk about at some point. However, I enjoyed the side plots to this season. I know not everyone did, and I felt like they were wrapped up well enough. Some of them are more rushed than others. Some of them are not quite uh, as well done as the Kate and Anthony story, but I feel like... All the side plots were fun to follow along with. Not perfect, but at least fun to have on the screen. They all kind of got resolved in one way or another. And there's a few juicy bits and pieces hanging out uh, for season three. How are Penelope and Eloise going to interact? Those types of things are kind of there. And so I felt like the, the, the episode wrapped up the side plots in a way that was, you know, satisfying enough while also leaving a few threads dangling for, for season three if you didn't know what it was going to be about. And I can appreciate that. It's hard to do, and I, I enjoyed all those kind of side plots along the way. And so there we are. I think I'm going to put that in the things that I liked, the, the resolution to the side plots as a whole, not each individual one, but as a whole, I felt like they were resolved well enough. Things that I didn't like. It's just going to be one thing, and it's going to be a pretty big thing. There is not a show that I have ever watched that so desperately just needs another episode. Like, I can, both seasons now, I can just pick the thing that the other episode needs to be about. In season one, you needed another episode to really go through the transformation from the Simon and Daphne from absolutely hating each other, especially considering the whole thing that Daphne kind of did to Simon and all that stuff. And you needed more time to get from where that was to having the kid and being happy about it. You just needed more time. You needed another episode there. In this season, you just needed so badly another episode of, I don't know if it's the engagement I want, if it's the wedding that I want. I don't know what it is. You just need the time between the end of the ball when Kate and Anthony decide that they're going to be married or whatever and that they love each other and the steadying each other and all that stuff. 
And you need time between that and them at the Pall Mall thing when they're like sucking each other's neck in front of the whole family at Pall Mall, right? There's just stuff there. Like, how does this wedding go? How does the ton react to it? What does Lady Whistledown say about it? You know, how do you go and how, what, how, what are Anthony's conversations with his siblings about Kate? Like, there's just stuff there that you really miss out. You know, Kate and Anthony are, are such a big part of this season. Obviously, it's their season. And they did such a good job with it that not getting anything between when they decide to be married and to when they are kind of already married for months just really sucks. How does that work? Do they sleep with each other in between their engagement and their wedding? Like, how do they stop? Do they not? I don't even know. I don't even know. All I'm saying is I just, I wanted some more time between when they decide they're going to get married and like the the epilogue that we get and i don't mind epilogues i really don't however 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 i do mind them when they give us something instead of doing it properly right this epilogue is meant to show you hey look it's anthony and kate they're happily ever after they're married she's the viscountess now you know they've went for six months of traveling yeah it's been great but you don't show me any of that and that really sucks like i would love to see that stuff so it's like the epilogue is an acknowledgement of the stuff that we wanted to see they're like okay we need to let the audience know that Kate and Anthony are happy, that they got married, that she's as happy as the Viscountess six months later, they're still doing well, they're living at Aubrey Hall. Like, they need, the audience needs to know all that. Then fucking show me that. Then show me that stuff. Don't put it in an epilogue. I don't know. And I know sometimes you don't have a choice. I know it's not up to the people who make the show exactly how many episodes it's going to be and all that stuff. I get that. I understand there are actual restraints on this and that it wasn't some mean person denying another episode from all of us. However... I just don't like it when the epilogue obviously shows you things poorly or at least not enough of those things instead of just doing it properly in its own episode. And I guess that's the big thing I'm saying is in both seasons, they use kind of these epilogues as a way to to really quickly show you things that we could have been shown in a longer form episode and really enjoyed. And that just kind of drags on me a little bit. And this is the same as the wedding sin, right? This is where the wedding sin, I thought it would happen last episode, but it happened in this one where it starts to feel really bad where you're like, okay, I spent a whole episode with a wedding between Anthony and Edwina. And I, I enjoyed that episode way more than most people did, but it still just kind of feels like, man, I wanted that episode, but with Kate and Anthony, like I need another, if you're going to do that with Edwina and you're going to have this epilogue, you also need to have that middle piece which they just didn't do and they, it's been both seasons so far and i just grinds my gears so that is going to be the only thing in this episode i really didn't like we open the episode in the middle of the storm from the end of episode seven kate has fallen off her horse the, ho the horse kind of just bucked her off of it to be honest and she has cranked her head on a rock there's blood it's terrifying anthony runs up to her like takes off his jacket wraps her up in it and like there's a lot of thunder and lightning and shit going on they got to get out of here and then out, out of nowhere out of the clouds a cart is just a single cart on the road is driving by uh, what a well-timed cart i think we're left to presume that Anthony placed Kate in this cart and the cart took them back to Lady Danbury's house. He comes in, he runs up the stairs, everyone's freaking out, but Anthony, it turns out, knows a little bit of first aid. He puts some pressure on the wound, well done. Good work, Anthony, that's awesome. I have no idea what Benedict is doing here, but Benedict comes up and does some good brothering. He's like, hey, 
is everything all right? Clearly not. But then he says, like, are you all right? Are you good to go? And then Anthony starts having this just kind of emotional meltdown in a, in a way that felt very real to me. He, he's, he thinks this is all his fault. Like, if he, he's going back just like everything else, right? If he hadn't have done this, if he hadn't have slept with her or whatever they did in the terrace, if he hadn't have driven her to go on the horse ride, then she wouldn't have fallen off. It, it, she's not dead yet, but it's kind of like survivor's guilt in a way. And this is something that already Anthony struggles with quite a bit. So it just really sucks in this moment to see him kind of blaming himself for this thing when it's clearly obviously not his fault. So it's a little bit of survivor's guilt going on here. And Benedict's doing his best to be a, a good brother, but Anthony is kind of just lost in his head right now. Uh, in a way that felt real to me. If you were in this situation in real life, I, I think a lot of us would also feel the same way. We get a quick glimpse of society where they are all mad that there has been no Lady Whistledown. So we know Penn is having, not buyer's remorse in a way, but she has decided, like, hey, I fucked with Elle. I wrote that hit piece. Eloise's reputation is down the tubes. I gotta stop writing Lady Whistledown, you know, with great, <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility. So I gotta, I gotta close up shop. I can't do this anymore. I, I like how I'm equating Lady Whistledown to Spider-Man. Also, we get uh, Lady Cowper saying the term radical ruffian, which I'm just gonna put in my Tinder bio. I think that's all I need, right? I think that's what's left. I think that's what's missing from my Tinder bio is just radical ruffian. And I'm going to throw that in there and we'll see how it goes. I'll give everyone an update. Um, but I thought that I thought that phrasing was just really funny that we, we talk about all the time, the consequences of all of these actions, like being in a room alone together, you know, going unchaperoned to this place or that place. And the real consequence is that Lady Cowper is going to call you a radical ruffian. And that is that that is pretty much the sum total of consequences Eloise faces for going unchaperoned to see Theo. So I'll take it and I'm throwing it in a Tinder bio. We get to the Featherington house and Sneeze and Cheese's wife is back. This is the sister, what's her name? We have Prudence and Penelope and Philippa. This is Philippa Featherington. And Philippa Featherington is back and Prudence is talking about her wedding. And I had this thought, I wonder if Philippa Featherington is explaining sex to the other two. I, I don't know if P Penelope last season was, you know, to thinking that babies got, you know, trans transmuted by cake or whatever was going on. But then earlier in this season, Lady Whistledown writes about like the hen and the rooster and how like the hen and the rooster make no vows or whatever. So has she caught on to sex or not? Who knows? But Philippa Featherington has an interesting uh, power dynamic in this sister group where she's the only one who knows uh, what sex is and the others don't, which I think in a family in this time would be very awkward. Like, do you tell your sisters? Do you let them figure it out for himself? Because I get why the parents don't tell the kids, no matter how fucking dumb that is. I at least understand it from like a social expectation point of view but sisters within sister groups like does Daphne tell Eloise and you know Fettuccine whatever her name is what what is her name um Francesca yeah <laughs> it's Francesca not Fettuccine we're going with Fettuccine um uh Francesca and Hyacinth does she does she tell Hyacinth about sex who knows but I just wanted to highlight there's some interesting power dynamics going on uh, about these sisters here no matter how hard she tries, Penelope is not allowed to visit Eloise because the Bridgerton's reputation is down the tubes. It's down the drain. You can't visit. The scandal that would ensue if the super honorable and, and you know, you know, high and mighty Featherington's visited Eloise Bridgerton would be too much for them to handle. So Penelope just has to kind of, you know, 
I don't know what wilt by this window here. Uh, she gets called an insepid wallflower later, so I'm gonna go with wilting by the window. The Featherington parents, or at least adults in the room here, are discussing what to do with all the money they've scammed. <laughs> Their choices are a ball or a giant gun cabinet, which is hilarious. Those are, <laughs> like, what kind of choice is that? I like how they talk about it. This whole dynamic is fun. Lady Featherington's like, we should have a ball. Um, cousin Jack is like, I should buy a giant gun cabinet. And then Lady Featherington, before she can even entertain the thought, just turns to Miss Varley and goes, Hey, fuck this guy and his dumb ideas. We're having a ball. You got to write the invites and set everything up. And this whole thing is bonkers too. I do like the little bit of English. You don't have a ball. You give a ball. Or at least they say, we should give a ball instead of we should have a ball. Fun little bit of English there. Don't know if that's true or not. I'm going to assume that they did more research than I did. But fun little way of phrasing things. But she goes to Miss Varley and pretty much says, hey... I know you're the only staff member here other than like the one lady's maid that we had that we hired and almost had to fire again. Uh, can you organize this entire fucking ball? Uh, not only do you have to organize this entire ball and send out the invitations, uh, it has to be the best of everything and all of that stuff needs to be gold. And it's like, oh, this is a lot of work for one person to be doing. I don't know what kind of load management system they have here, but as someone who organizes and coordinates every day for work, this is a lot of things to organize and coordinate on your own. They talk about having the Sharmas and the Bridgertons come, and <laughs> I like that this power dynamic is flipped ever so slightly, where they're like, should we invite the Bridgertons and the Sharmas? And then um, one of the sisters, oh, which one? Probably Prudence, maybe Philippa, not Penelope, one of the two other ones, was like, hey, well, you know what? It'd be fun to have them bring along and watch all the drama. And then um, Lady Featherington is like, well, it'd be nice to have people come by, no matter how scrupulous their reputation is, to see how well we're doing. And it's crazy, because how well they're doing is just the money they stole from all the people they're inviting to the ball. So it's not even how well they're doing, it's how well they've scammed. It's like... Oh, what is it like? It's like showing somebody their own funeral in a way. It's not exactly like that, but it's like, or, or, hear me out. It's like what the British people do. They, they went around for hundreds of years and stole a bunch of stuff from a bunch of people. And then they put it in a museum in a clear glass case so that everyone whose stuff got stolen can go and look at all the stuff in a museum and read the little card that tells you that the stuff was stolen. <laughs> That's kind of like what they're doing. They're like, hey, we scammed all this money from you and we spent it all at this fucking dance party that we're hosting for you, which is, oh, the whole dynamic of this is incredible. Over at the Bridgerton house, there's a lot of stuff going on. First, there's a good little, I like these little bits of like dynamics between people. Hyacinth is asking about why Mama Bridgerton is sending flowers to the Sharmas for the 150th time. And Mama Bridgerton gets a good little bit of parenting, but also like this is the kind of stuff that you pick up along the way because Hyacinth is going to have to lead her own household one day. She's going to marry into a house. She's going to be the woman of the house and be planning all the balls and everything and be doing all the flower arranging and whatnot. Um, and Mama Bridgerton says, like hey there's nothing worse than rotting flowers when someone's ill or whatever which is just a good little bit of parenting and you know you pick up these little bits and pieces throughout life and i en i enjoyed that a little bit uh, eloise is there and there's no actual consequences for her miss miss bridgerton was given the cut direct twice she says but basically eloise just gets to sit inside and read and stuff and whatever there's no it's just i don't know I guess the concept, I guess for this class of people, the, oh, the only consequence that matters is being socially outcast, which I suppose is a real consequence for Eloise at this point, but she hates being social anyway, so I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't know. I'm not convinced Eloise is facing any kind of repercussions for this whistledown hit piece, other than it makes her feel bad, which it should. She should feel pretty bad. Not because of what she did, but because, you know, every anyone would feel bad if a gossip column wrote uh, a hit piece on them. Anthony walks into the room, and I'm going to defend Anthony here. I know Anthony's not the best at this job of running the household, but he's certainly not terrible at it. And all of the shit here is shit he actually needs to fucking keep track of. His family, his entire family, from the beginning of season one up until now, has been absolutely useless in making it easy for him to do this job. So he always has to do it with a modicum of difficulty, which he may or may not be capable of. But Colin, specifically Colin, being like, well... Well, I don't know. I don't know why you're asking me about the fucking money, dude. I am one in 20 and I can take out. I was exploring an investment with Mr. Featherington. It's like, Colin, whatever you think of this society, Anthony's job is literally the fucking money. Like, you did not spend the last two days balancing the books. Anthony did that. You know what I mean? Like, Anthony's job is keeping track of the money, and you're fucking wasting it with Mr. Featherington. Or, at least not telling Anthony about it. What if Anthony was doing a renovation on Aubrey Hall? What if Anthony had hired a few more staff? What if Anthony was buying new carriages for everyone and needed that money, and you fucking spent it? Like, no, I, no, 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 no. I am with Anthony here. Colin, you're being a twit. You're being a twit, Colin. Stop being silly. Eloise is mad because Anthony's mad at her about her activities where Anthony does not even know where to begin. And well, we all agree, you and I listening to this, that Eloise should be allowed to see who she wants and go and see Theo and yada yada this and yada that. And this whole system of society is dumb. Within this society, though, Anthony's like has a point like and you're acting like Eloise, like I'm trying to run this family and you can't stay out of the fucking whistle down. Like you cannot. Stay out of Whistledown. Do whatever you want. Just stay out of Whistledown. You're you're bringing the family rep down. I get it. I get it. It's not perfectly fair to Eloise, and this is all Penelope's fault for writing about it. However, I get it from Anthony's point of view where he's like, look, I'm not even mad about the Theo thing. I just, honest to God, need you to stay out of the fucking paper so that I can run this household in an easier way. I, I get the frustration from his point of view. Him dunking on Benedict for doodling, that was a little bit mean. But then Hyacinth, the, the Benedict is allowed to leave in a huff. That's fair enough. I think Hyacinth and Gregory leaving angry is just dumb. Like what they're just they're they're just there to get mad at him now. Right? Hyacinth is like, I have so much to read or whatever. It's like, ah shut the fuck up, Hyacinth. Then Gregory's like, and I have my Latin. Like, he wasn't even mad at you. He was not even mad at you. He was mad at Colin and Eloise and then kind of Benedict by, you know, he's already in a bad mood. And he's only in this bad mood because Kate, his, the love of his life is like dying on a bed somewhere. Like, I get it. I get it. And no one gets it. Like, I, I'm with Anthony here. I get the frustration. You're, the love of your life is dying. You're in a pretty bad mood. But even within his bad mood, he's mostly caring about shit that's literally his job to care about. And all of his siblings are at best, at best, like, unnecessarily mad at him when he never said anything to them. And at worst, actually just, like, wasting the fucking money on an investment with the Featheringtons. And it's like, okay, I get... I get why Anthony is in this mood, and I understand his frustration, and zero people in this household make it any easier for him. Do we remember at the end of the wedding when they were all, like, sitting in here dunking on him after that, too? His siblings, as funny as they are, do absolutely nothing to make this household easy to run for Anthony, despite knowing that he's not the best at it and could probably use a leg up somewhere. Ridiculous. Absurd from the Bridgerton siblings. Just mean.
Mama Bridgerton decides it's, it's finally time to do some proper mothering. It's been seven episodes this season. But Mama Bridgerton, to be fair, I've been disliking her uh, this whole season. And I don't want to like her just because the writers decided this episode that she could be a good mother instead of a bad one. But the, she does have a turnaround in this episode in a way that I can appreciate. Um, Anthony, or she's talking to Anthony and cannot believe that he hasn't gone to see Kate. Uh, she's catching on. She knows the reason that the wedding didn't go on was because they, at the very least, like each other. At the very most, are desperately in love with each other. She knows that they're somewhere in there. And she's like, dude, you have to fucking go. And Anthony's like, I've been busy. I've been so busy kind of being mad at my siblings that I cannot go and see her and in reality you know why it's because he thinks it's his fault he can't bring himself to he explains this later too where it's like look i if i don't go and see her then i don't have to see her kind of lying in bed unconscious like possibly before she dies if i don't go and see her then i i it's kind of like when something is happening vaguely in your head that you hear about it's very different than viscerally seeing it it's so much easier it's not, not that that makes it easy. That's not what I'm saying. It's still very hard for Anthony. But it's easier to just kind of be separate from actually having to look at Kate unconscious in a bed, thinking that you might lose her, than it is to kind of pretend to go about your day-to-day -day business. Everyone grieves in different ways. I, I kind of think Anthony's way of grief here is pretty common, where it's like, I'm just going to keep myself busy. I'm just going to do my work. If I don't like go and look at it and acknowledge it, in real life that I can pretend it's all in my head and at least get through the day. So I get what he's saying, but I also get what Mama Bridgerton is saying. It's like, you have to go and see her and you have to make time, right? I, I like this idea or this bit of parenting or this bit of just communicating with people. And I liked it earlier in the season two when it happened. I can't remember when it happened, but it did happen earlier in the season Oh, what was it? Oh, this is so bad. I mean, I record these podcasts weeks apart, right? So it's been probably a month since I did a podcast on it. But there was another point where Mama Bridgerton said something that I was like, that's good. That's good parenting here. Where she just says, like, I'm not going to fight with you. I'm not going to fight with you. I'm not going to tell you what to do. But perhaps, just perhaps, just have a think. Perhaps you might wish to make time. Like, oh, just one liner leaves the room. That's all the advice and parenting. There's so much in that one line there. Absolutely exquisite writing. Love that. Love the delivery. Loved all of it. Good work. Mama Bridgerton. Violet is having a stonks episode. Her stock is rising. Pan over to Kate before we get to Eloise. And I don't know what we were meant to do. At it's just like a, hey, just so you're aware, Kate's still in a coma or whatever. But she looks, she's been, <laughs> we learned she's been there for a week. She looks fantastic. She's like Sleeping Beauty, just like sitting there. Skin is all nice. You know what I mean? Makeup is all done really well. Looks like she's having a really fantastic nap. I, if I was ever in a coma for a week, I wish I could look that good. I don't even look that... Obviously, I don't look anywhere near as good as Simone Ashley does on a, on a good day. However, I think if you took me on my best day and Simone Ashley on her worst day, she is still at least 25 times as attractive as I am. And then when she sits in a, like, in a coma, I know it's a movie coma or whatever, like it's just impressive. She just looks great for someone who hasn't meant to be like eating or drinking or anything in like a week incredible anyways moving on uh, we get the most elite footman of all time i don't know if there was a footman draft class all right if you had to or if there was a footman valedictorian i'm trying to pick an analogy for all the people the sports people the school people the other people if you're not a sports person or a school person and you're another type of person you can just make up your own analogy here 
we have an elite footman going tops in the draft. He understands Eloise and how much she wants to go see Theo. This letter comes in in a book from the printer shop. He brings it up to the room, gives it to Eloise, goes, you'll want to read this one. And before she can even read it, knows, knows instinctively because he is a good footman that she's going to want that motherfucking carriage. And he's like, I got the carriage ready. I'm ready outside. What is this man? This man is elite at his job. We do not get into the footman politics of 1814 in this show. I would like a spinoff that just go like, how do you decipher who gets the shitty footman? Who's paying for those? Do the Cowpers have them? The Gorings? What about the Fifes? Are they dealing with this? Like who, how much do you pay this man? Whatever you pay this man, he needs a raise. They don't pay him a lot. It's probably like one pence. Give him one pence 50 a month or something. Like give him a slightly nicer accommodation. This guy is on tippy top of his game. Even better, he knows for sure that Anthony, the head of the household and the person who's in charge of his employment, would not like at all that he was getting that carriage ready for Eloise, but it doesn't fucking matter because he is elite at his job and his mission is to be the footman for Eloise Bridgerton and by golly, he will do that mission with the utmost, you know, courage and whatever and be good at it. And I don't even know what I'm trying to say. I appreciated this fucking footman though. What a job, what an elite performance from him. Also, before you send me any emails being like, this dude analyzed the footman better than he analyzed the rest of the episode and the plot, you don't need to send that email. I do not care. That is what I noticed in this episode, and I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. The footman is elite, okay? Don't email me. Just watch it back. Elite footman performance there. That is what I'm here for, for elite performances from people in all jobs, from all walks of life in this show, and that footman deserves this shout out on this podcast anyways uh the elite footman takes them or takes her to theo and i just it's it's bonkers that she's going back to hang out with theo after everything that's happened but pretending it's not bonkers she goes to hang out with theo and we i'm rooting for these two i'm rooting for these two i really am rooting for these two i'm not gonna get as invested in theo as i was in sienna because everyone's feedback was this fucking guy needs to let go of sienna or i will not listen to these podcasts anymore which was fair enough now that i know about kate i get it to be fair to myself you all knew about kate before i did so all i knew was sienna i was liking what i knew all right i was liking i was liking my home cooked steak that i knew how to make and then it's just recently that i i, I knew what a really nice gourmet properly cooked properly seasoned 500 dollar expert you know gordon ramsay steak was like and now I like that one more. But at the time you emailed me, I only knew the ordinary one. Okay, I, I get it. I understand. So I don't want to root for Theo too much because it, it'll, just, it'll just let me down. It'll just let me down a little bit. However, I love so much. So I don't even know how to explain this. How fucking funny it is that this mother, that this guy was pretending this guy was pretending this guy was like why why do you think i poo-pooed you out of my shop despite wanting to do the very opposite it's like hold up hold the phone sir mr printer boy you were doing the what you were doing the reverse backhand maneuver where it's like you were you were putting the reverse uno down where you're trying to after it has been published in Lady Whistledown that Eloise like fucked up or whatever. And Eloise is coming 
to like make sure you're okay. You're throwing down the reverse end and be like, no, you got to get out of here. I can't talk to you. I can't speak with you. You've got to go. You had your fun with low life. Get out of here. And then we learn it was all a prank. It was all a joke to save Eloise. Eloise was already in the papers, my guy. Anyways, I like that. I like that this guy was playing, punching above his weight a little bit. You know what I mean? This guy is a printer. Not that he also can't be a reverse Uno super sleuth kind of, you know, 340 chess kind of person. However, I think it's hilarious that we learned that Theo was like pretending to get Eloise out of there in like some weird effort to protect her. I think that's fun. After the Lady Whistledown pamphlet had been written. Anyways, this episode's got to move quickly. So Eloise and this episode of TV, not the episode of the podcast, is moving quickly. So Eloise and Detective Theo, they're on the case now. All is well. You know, all all bridges have been mended. Everyone's happy again. And we are, we are on the case. The letters, they come in silks. They do not come in paper. Let's roll. We are going to find Lady Whistledown. We take a stroll over to the palace where it appears the queen has done slightly too good of a job with Lady Whistledown because now she misses Lady Whistledown, which is very funny because it was the queen going after Eloise and then Pan having to write the hit piece that stopped Lady Whistledown from writing. It was the queen's fault. If we go back to the origin of the demise of Lady Whistledown or the perceived demise of Lady Whistledown, it was specifically when the queen, instead of doing a good job with her salute, to be fair, to be fair, it would... If you saw Eloise Bridgerton running away during her brother's wedding to go to a print shop, that is pretty conclusive evidence in 1814 when you have unilateral control over judgment in the matter. I get that. But still, it's all the Queen's fault that Lady Whistledown isn't writing still. And now she's like, oh man, I kind of miss Lady Whistledown. And then <laughs> she starts asking Lady Danbury, who she's only invited because Lady Whistledown isn't around anymore, so she needs someone to talk to, which that's got to feel good for Lady Danbury. She asks about the wedding, and she's like, hey, Lady Danbury, I don't, what, what happened? What happened with the wedding? Do you know what happened? Because I never got an answer, and I'm the fucking Queen, and I need an answer. And then Lady Danbury's like, ah, you're gonna ask me this question now when when you know the elder kate sharma is lying in bed after boinking her head on a rock this is unacceptable i i am thinking about this from morning from dawn till dusk i simply have no capability to answer your question well kate is in a coma which is you know people do this all the time where it's like sorry i couldn't do this but this was happening at home that it just distracted me or whatever it's a cool that, hap that works a lot of the time, but also, like, I don't understand why Lady Danbury... I, it's a good deflection tactic, I'll say that. It's like, she doesn't want to answer the question, so she's making up a good excuse not to. Which is fair enough, especially if the real answer kind of disparages the person who's in the coma. I guess that makes sense. The queen is like, yo, don't worry about it, I'ma send a hundred fucking necklaces to Kate Sharma, that'll help. And I was like, how awkward is it if you send all these necklaces... To a person who who I guess they think might die. So it's like what dead Kate is gonna have 26 necklaces? Like that's not helpful. Send a couple of doctors. Send the country's best doctor. That would probably be the most helpful. Right? But also necklaces, do we need to send more flowers? Send send some stuff to the other, you know, Sharmas. Right? Like, do we need Kate to have a bunch of necklaces anyways? I just thought that was fun. 
Hopping on over to Will Mondrich's bar, things are not going well. However, to his wife, she's trying to keep the spirits high. She's like, come on, Will, stick to yourself. This bar needs tending, which I wrote, this bar doesn't at all need even the slightest bit of tending. There is nobody here. There are two people having drinks, <laughs> and the bar does not need tending. But anyways, um, Will goes to do the right thing. Colin and Mr. Featherington are hammering out a deal and money and mines and Georgia and stuff. And Mr. Featherington, no, sorry, Mr. Mondrich, comes over and is like hey dude i fucked with the other featherington and he was a little bit of a scammer and i know i made all this money and i kind of regret it but kind of not really because i got all this money but i once condoned those scrupulous actions and i don't anymore and this guy's a scammer mr featherington obviously is pretending to take umbrage to this and be like hey you can't say those darn things about me because they are all true things but hey i'm trying to steal this guy's money and you're not letting me steal this guy's money. And then Colin stands up, and at a time you think, oh, fucking dumb Colin, what are you doing? And he defends the Featherington, but we learn later that he took what Will Mondrich said to heart and actually did some investigations and found out that Mr. Featherington was a scammer. So at the moment, I was mad at Colin the first time I watched this. Now, I'm mad respect for Colin for kind of, you know... You know, playing it tight, keeping the cards close to the vest, being like, yeah, 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 Will, shut, shut up, stop saying mean things about the Featheringtons. Don't worry, Will, I'm going to go find Mr. Featherington and unveil his scam, and I will fill this bar with all of my really rich friends by the end of the episode. Yeah, Mr. Mondrich, don't ever say anything about the Featheringtons. Their reputation has been unfairly tarnished, despite the fact that just last year... The head of the household was murdered for his gambling debts. This his family has been unfairly tarnished. But don't worry, I will find him out and give you all the money in the world. We're leaving now, Mr. Mondrich. You cannot afford to lose any more customers, so you will shut your mouth from now on. That is how that conversation went down. Exactly. Let's move over to the next thing that happens. At the Featherington house, Mr. Featherington, Cousin Jack, just barges into the room of Miss Featherington. And she, quite fairly, says, like, hey, what the fuck? I know you gave me this room, and I like that, but please, you gotta knock on the door, because this is absurd. You can't just walk in to a lady's room like that. And he's like, <laughs> he pretty much like, yeah, 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 whatever, it's my house, shut up. And they talk about the ball, they're gonna make the ball gold, everything's gonna be gold, it's gonna be great. He is saying, hey, we've swindled everyone in London. I've talked to everyone, I have all the money. Oh, we, I don't know what to do with it, which I don't know how this scheme ends. Cause if you have all the money, what, what, like you're going to have to spend it. It's not a lifetime's worth of money. You are going to have to spend it eventually. And I, I'm assuming this ball is quite expensive. Anyways, they have been very efficient in moving through London and stealing money from everyone they can steal money from. So that's, that part of their plan has worked out really well for them. This part of their plan though, Lady Featherington I, in my instant reaction, I had said I read an interview with Polly Walker talking about Lady Featherington, into which I did not understand if she understood the character in the show Bridgerton that she played, because she kind of had a very rosy outlook on Lady Featherington. Lady Featherington is possibly the dumbest scammer of all time. I do not understand for the life of me how she thought that this was going to end up anywhere else but having to move far away. Well, I don't know how she thought, like, okay, we've gone around, like, they also, this plan was her idea, so let's not forget that, most of this plan was her idea, so we go around and we steal everyone's money, they will never, there is nothing to invest it in, we just took it, there's no mines, they will never get any money back, 
So we're going to steal the money from all of our really rich, powerful, and wealthy neighbors. They live right around the corner from us. We all live in the ton, right? And we're going to take it all and we're going to use it. And then we're never going to give any of it back to them, despite it being an investment. So then we're just going to get to live in and amongst all the people we swindled and nobody will care. Like, of course, you're going to have to move. You're going to have to take their money and run with their money. That's the part one of the scam is you don't steal everyone's money and then live in the middle of everyone who can just come and find you after you stole their money. That's not how it works. So of course they were going to have to move somewhere unless they were just planning on building a really, really secure fence with all of their money. This is just dumb. Lady Featherington is just stupid. She has not thought about this scam. She's making no sense. And Mr. Featherington, Cousin Jack, has the right of like, yo, we got to fuck off to the Americas with all this money or they're going to come find us. And the queen, like, what is the queen? The queen's not going to side with you either. So I don't know. This is ridiculous. It's ridiculous that Lady Featherington hadn't at all considered that they'd have to move with all of their stolen money, because of course they would. Or his way of trying to convince her is, hey, America doesn't have a queen. Maybe you could be the queen. Which, you know, cool. Yeah, I, I don't know in what capacity. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean like a literal queen. But I'm not really sure in what capacity Lady Featherington would be anyone's queen other than his over in America. But hey, if that's what... He, he, I get it. He's trying to convince her to go. Everyone likes being told that they'd be a queen or a king or something. So that, you know, that makes sense to me. Just after we finish up with the Featheringtons for a moment, we bop over to the Sharma House where Edwina is a summoner of people because she asks and receives, please, Kate, you can't, you can't leave me like this. We have so much left to do. Our lives cannot be this short. And then Kate just pops up awake, which is awesome. Uh, I, everyone should have tried asking. I think, you know, all the doctors are there. They're doing like bloodletting and stuff, or they're not because she looks fantastic. They're not even, I don't see any medical equipment or procedures happening for Kate other than, I like how the doctor's like, well, she's asleep and she will either wake up or sleep forever. And those are the two things that can happen. It's like fucking awesome. Thank you. Um, but you know, Edwina summons Kate back from her coma. And so she's back. And <laughs> in the most, this is ridiculous. I want to know how, I want you to know how ridiculous this is. But the only thing she's concerned about, she wakes up, she's like, oh yeah, the fall, the horse, all of it. Hey, has Anthony been here? Has Anthony been around? For no reason, I promise you, we didn't have super hot sexual stuff on the garden terrace. That did not happen for unrelated other reasons. I desperately want to know if Anthony has been around. And Lady Danbury's like, hey, he brought you back. It was gallant. It was, you know, it was nice. He, he had the wound pressure on the head was all good. And he, he placed you here and he did it gallantly. And she's like, well, he, he hasn't been here since. I need to rest. Which, of course, Kate, Char like, it is, this is going to be a bigger deal later in the episode. It's crazy to me that Anthony does all of the work of like chasing her down. I mean, he wasn't chasing her. He was chasing her down to marry her, but whatever. So he goes, he finds her, he brings her back, he puts her in bed. He, I guess, is part of the reason saved her life or whatever. And then she's like, mm, but he didn't really visit those. So does he love me? Does he love me? If he loved me, he would have visited it. Like, if he loved, like, I don't know, Kate. I think I watched that garden terrace scene. It felt a lot like love to me. But anyways, we'll move on. We'll come back later. But I think it's just so funny that Kate is just hung up on the fact. Like, did Anthony visit? Like, to Edwina, too. He's like, hey, Edwina, look, I know you just almost got married to him. But I just woke up from a coma. And I need to know if he visited for unrelated reasons. So funny. So good. Loved it.
On a more serious note, we move over to Anthony receiving the news from Mama B that Kate is awake. And he does such a good job with this emotion, this kind of emotion that's just compressed. Like all of the emotion has just been compressed inside for like a week. And we've seen it in his interactions with his siblings. And then the second he knows she woke up, it just it's out. It's all out. The the face, the the little twitches and quivers, the tears, all of it just Jonathan Bailey absolutely 12 out of 10 acting performance in this scene mama bridgerton also gets really emotional and is 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 now fully aware about how much anthony kind of loves kate and she starts i want to say apologizing i don't know if she needs to apologize but she starts talking about um right when anthony's father died and she's like you know i wish you weren't the one there and i wish i acted better kind of after that we saw those moments where she like wouldn't come to dinner and you know was kind of in shock or grief and you know what you can't blame her for any of that so i don't know if she needs to apologize for it but still it's nice that she's acknowledging how these things would have affected anthony if that if it and, and if that if she could go back she would change some of them to make it easier for him i, I enjoyed that little bit of, of um kind of retrospective honesty from from Mommer, Ma, Mama Bridgerton. Um, she, or he says, I don't think I can see her. And in my notes, I it was like, oh, fucking fuck. This is absurd. Like, go and see her. Go. You have to go and see her. But it gives Mama Bridgerton the opportunity to, like, talk about the reverse problem that Edwina talked about. Edwina talked about in the last episode, or in episode six, one of the two. Like, hey, even Mama and Appa ended in tragedy, and that was a great love story. And now we get the kind of someone who was in that love story saying, and it was all worth it. It was all worth it. The love was worth it. The kids were worth it. You're all worth it. Um, obviously, there was a lot of pain and grief and, and suffering after Papa Bridgerton died, but I would do it all over again. And, and knowing how bad it hurt, I would still do it all over again. Um, and you kind of get to the point of the show. Love has a cost, but it's always worth it. And that that's kind of that's kind of the point of all of these shows, really. I think that's the when when people talk about love in these types of media, TV shows, movies, books, more often than not, the 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 point people are trying to get across is that like love has a cost. And sometimes that cost is grief and suffering and agony and sacrifice um, but the true, the real love, that the real connection with that person is always going to be worth it. And so that's kind of what Mama Bridgerton is leaving Anthony with. Like, you have to go. You must. This is, it is all worth it. No matter what pain and suffering and whatever you're feeling, no matter what pain and suffering or whatever you're imagining you'll have to deal with later, it does not matter because it is worth the cost of loving Kate, which is just... It's something that only really she can give from her perspective, but it's something Anthony needs to hear. Whoop, I just punched my microphone stand. Whoopsies. Um, it's something Anthony needs to, to hear. And this is this is the Mama Bridgerton I wish we would have had in, earlier in the season instead of somebody who just was unattentive and aloof. This, so, this feels someone who's really in tune with her kids, who's really able to leverage her experience to, to give some good advice to her children. And whether Anthony takes that advice or not, we'll find out. But just in this scene, just an excellent job acting all the way around. You know, really emotional scene. Really, really enjoyed it. After visiting Theo, Eloise is now armed to the teeth with all the information she needs to go. And as she puts it, dress down the modiste, which was very, very funny because Eloise, Eloise's version of a dress down is like some pointed, but on the whole, pretty harmless question. So she's talking to the modiste about her involvement with Lady Whistledown. She is getting absolutely nowhere, which kind of vibes with Eloise's kind of sleuthing abilities in the first place. The Featheringtons walk in. 
The Featheringtons walk in and say, and I quote, we want to be gilded, or we would like to be gilded. Either way, best line of the episode. I laughed out loud. Polly Walker's delivery is so good. I don't know. I, it's just little moments like this that make me really love this fucking silly, silly show. Because that line was so good. We would like to be gilded. Like, fucking hell. Of course they would say that. Like, everything so far from their Featherington ball has been about being gold and rich and... Ah. So, of course, they're going to come and, and, and get new dresses at the Modiste. And then Eloise takes Penelope outside and starts talking to her about Lady Whistledown. These two have not been able to talk to each other, to speak to each other recently, because Eloise has been, you know... The hit piece from Penelope has made it so they can't talk to each other, because their, their reputation is in disrepute. However, Eloise is talking about Lady Wilson, like, yo, I went to visit Theo, and we got we got her. She was using the printer shop, because we all know there's at least a million printer shops in London. So it's very difficult to figure out which printer shop Lady Whistledown was was using. But Penelope, we got it. And Penelope has kind of two reactions. First, what the fuck? <laughs> I, I made this hit piece. I did all this damage to you. And you're still going to visit Theo. What she says is like, I thought you were done with that boy or whatever. But in her head, you know she's going, oh, fucking fuck Eloise. Ah, I did all the stuff. To make it so you would stop trying to find Lady Whistledown. And you just keep going. So that's one reaction. And then there was another more subtle one. That I want to feel bad for Penelope. For having happened to her. However, I simply do not. And that's maybe a fault of my own character. Or my analysis of this episode and this season. But Eloise is talking to her about Lady Whistledown. And she's telling Eloise not to scream at her. And I'm with Penelope on this. Eloise is not the best friend. She's not a good listener. She kind of imposes her will on Penelope in a lot of ways. It does kind of seem sometimes that she uh, unintentionally uses the fact that she's the more popular Bridgerton to kind of be the power dynamic in that relationship between the two. However, 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 Penelope was the one that went and fucking smeared her in the papers and everything. So I... I don't know if I'm ready to fully believe Eloise is a bad friend in a more in a more human and more maybe not human's the right word in a more um not common oh what is the word I'm looking for not trivial oh boy man English is failing me today I bet you you've already figured out the word I'm looking for Eloise is a bad friend in a more subtle and hurtful way it's kind of like a death by a thousand cuts kind of situation with ellen it was, she's not a very good listener she's not very attentive to your needs she's not you know what i mean like that type of thing just not a very good friend in that way whereas penelope is mostly a good friend in all of those ways and then instead just fucking whatever the equivalent it's like putting a giant billboard over the busy highway about how terrible you are what on earth windows stop that Windows wants me to update. Anyway, sorry, this, this podcast is going off the rails. Um, but yeah, Penelope is mostly a good friend in all the subtle things. And then eventually, she just gets to the point where she's like, nah, I'm about to be found out. I'm a lookout for myself. Fuck friendship. And then throws Eloise and Lady Whistle down, po posts the big billboard over the busy highway. And I'm more with Eloise overall. I'm more with Eloise overall. I, and I think, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go, I'm more with Eloise overall. What Penelope is doing is worse than Eloise's many but smaller infractions as a friend.
We take a quick trip over to the art house where Benedict is painting. The model is not nude this time where we have moved past painting boob and we are now painting, what, are, what do you call that, a shawl? It's kind of like a very beautiful looking shawl, kind of like how you have those statues that have the, the silk kind of, um, or it's marble, but it's been chiseled into something looking like silk. That's kind of the same kind of shawl thing she's wearing. It's very nice. It's a very good painting. I liked this painting. Obviously, Benedict did not paint it. It was, you know, someone in the art department, but I thought the painting was well done enough. It looked good enough. It was believable. It was a believable painting for someone of Benedict's kind of perceived ability as someone who knows nothing about art and just watches the show and has never seen Benedict actually paint, uh, this felt like a painting that would be within B Benedict's above average but still unrefined ability as a painter. Uh, the dude comes in, the other guy from the Art Academy comes in and says, Hey, yo, that painting's pretty good. That surprises me because we thought you'd be all drink and no paint, baby. Party Benedict was coming and Arty Benedict was not around it didn't exist and so benedict goes hey what's up or sorry the guy goes you know considering that your your admission was based on and then the woman who's the who's being the the person that's painting goes like i right, shut the fuck up like, what are you talking about why are we bringing this up she knows it's gonna it's gonna make benedict feel sad and she's on it so she's Hey, whatever. And then Benedict's like, no, 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 no. Enlighten me. I am a Bridgerton. Enlighten my brain with the knowledge of why I was accepted. And the guy goes, well, because of your brother's big donation. And at which point, could, do the air horns work here? I have no idea if you heard those air horns, but if you did, I have a whole soundboard that I use for other things like not podcasting. I liked this little twist so much, and I'm going to defend Anthony here. I understand why Benedict leaves this room feeling pretty sad and talking to Eloise about being like an imposter. I get it. He's up in his fields. His brother bought his way in. Yada this, yada that. I get it. Totally get it. I have no problems with how Benedict reacts to this. Other than, I guess my only problem about how Benedict reacts to this is where the fuck does he think the other privileges in his life come from? Because his family's loaded, Right. Like all of his art supplies probably bought it with family money or at least or at least with a big donation from the, the thing. You go to his house, his, his giant room with its own fucking footman, right? What, what Anthony pays for that. So I guess it's my only thing is that literally everything in his life is paid for by Anthony as part of being a Bridgerton. And like that's part of just his privilege. And he doesn't complain about any of the other things. But I get in this sense it's different and he feels like an imposter. So no problems with how Benedict reacts to this. But Anthony, we spend so much time dunking on Anthony as a sibling. His siblings spend so much time dunking on him as a person who runs the house. This is the kind of stuff you got to be doing if you are Anthony. Anthony is being a good bro here. This is 1814. Everything is bought. There are no rules for this kind of stuff. This is still what we're doing a lot of the time in 2022. We have our own dumb ass college rules. You know... That in some really high prestige colleges, you don't even have to be a good student. You just have to be related to like an accomplished alumni. And that'll get you in. Like we have not evolved from this at all. We are the same people as Anthony in 1814 in 2022 and nothing has changed other than we try and hide it a little bit better. I suppose, although Anthony hit it pretty well. Yeah, I'm defending this. Nothing has changed. If I am a wealthy aristocrat in 1814, 
and I got all this money to throw around. And my brother, who, you know, wants to be a painter, who Anthony doesn't seem to be overly supportive of the painting up until this point. Like he's he's not he's not not supportive. Right. But he's kind of like, you know, it doesn't he had that scene earlier where he's like, you know, being second does not absolve you from duty, brother. Right. Like he he's kind of in on the duty shit as well with Benedict. And for him to go out and just chuck some money at this and be like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to be a bro. I'm going to be the head of this household. Someone in this household, a Bridgerton wants to paint. He will get into the art academy and I don't have a problem with it. I don't have a problem with it. I do have like, like I do. I do have a problem with it. Sorry. I need to articulate this. I do have a problem with it. We should not be buying our way into things specifically because we're rich and powerful and influential and not because we earn and not because we didn't earn it. What am I trying to say? People should earn their places and things. They should not be purchased. That is a take that I hold that I'm sure most people agree with me with. However, in 1814, if I was in this situation, again, I will not pretend like I would be the hero of any of these stories. I would absolutely be chucking my money around to get my brother into art school. I get the sense that no one in this time was particularly worried about the honor and merit of whether you attended the Royal Academy for Art. And you know what? That's fair enough, because none of these people have earned literally fucking anything. And so um, for me to be mad at Anthony for this would be to like invalidate the whole television show and concept of it, which I'm not going to do. So I am defending Anthony in this moment, even though he's doing something I do fundamentally disagree with as an idea for how to have systems of admission in society let's move on this is getting complicated i am recording this at like seven in the morning for those of you wondering why this is so hard for me to get from my brain out of my mouth but let's move on to the next thing all right everybody kate and anthony here we go bada bing bada boom we are gonna start here all of these scenes are absurd and bonkers i just put that in my notes i put that in the facebook group i just want to say everything from here on out between Kate and Anthony is truly bonkers. These two just need to get together and they need to do that now because we are more than halfway through the final episode of the season. Putting all of that bonkersness aside for a minute, I like this little arc of Kate who will eventually decide to marry Anthony but will only do it purely for love. She's very, it ends up being very interesting that she takes none of the context clues that Anthony loves her seriously until he actually says the words, which I find to be very, it's a very interesting thing that goes on here. Because in this scene, Anthony rocks up. He's had that conversation with his mom. He brings flowers. Well done. Very, very uh, chivalrous of you, Anthony. Very kind. And then he, he's going, the, one of the first things he does is he's talking about the, the, the garden pavilion and the sexy stuff that they did. And I... I don't know if Anthony was there. I don't know if he's watched like the cut of that scene, um, but he's saying some things, you know, he's saying like, I took liberties and stuff and like, sure, I suppose I did appreciate that this version of Bridgerton in season two had like a pretty clear consent checkpoint that Kate passed through, right? So it doesn't, I didn't really feel like anyone was taking any liberties, which was nice. That was a huge refresher from season one, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I felt like we passed a pretty, you know, 
pretty clear consent checkpoint for 1814 but hey whatever he took liberties he's kind of in his head he's kind of in his head and he uh, kate almost died and he's trying to like justify all this and then he says you deserved so much more than that which i put in my notes i don't know mate it looked pretty fucking good to me <laughs> right like i i don't know what more i would have been hoping for in that situation but that's okay uh, anthony again in his head in his in his feels and then he he goes to he goes to propose to marry kate and it appears that Kate's reading of it and my reading of it is more of a duty and honor thing, right? I took liberties. I shouldn't have done that. We're, we're kind of obligated to get married now. So I'm going to propose and we're going to get married. And that's how it's going to go. And Kate's like, whoa, 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 hold the phone. Hold up. What? No, no, no. I'm, and okay, Kate is, I appreciate that Kate's saying no, because it's honor and duty based and not because it's love-based although it is love that's the problem is it is love-based but also honor and duty-based separating those two things is kind of hard right but the way anthony's kind of throwing it out there it's more about honor and duty and less about love at least the way he's saying it out loud although it's weird to me that kate doesn't i don't know it's just weird to me that kate doesn't like they clearly love me like i maybe i'm just a frustrated watcher like kate for kate's analysis to be that he doesn't love me must like that is that is really stretching the the factual case that's being put before her but that's fine um kate's like no 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 i'm going to india it is decided that's what i'm doing and anthony and mama sharma is going to say the exact same thing later says you're running away what are you doing this is clearly a thing you're just running away and she says go she's just she's just like shooing away a puppy like go go be gone bye and then he he does this head shake on the way out. That was exactly the same as my head shake as I was watching this. Because you just, at this point, before you saw the Garden Pavilion, the buildup was fine. But now that they had that, you're like, what is stopping you two? This is absurd. This is ridiculous. So that is, it's just this scene is so aggravating because you're like, holy fuck, just shut up and get together. But... I appreciate Kate's where we end up with it makes me appreciate this more in in hindsight. So let's let's move on and eventually we'll get to the this scene at the end where this scene makes a lot more sense. We are back with Eloise and Theo. They are there in the evening. How has Eloise managed to get out of the house and stay out of the house in the evening unchaperoned? Who knows? Who knows? It's not me, but that's okay because they are there together. They're trying to figure out who Lady Whistledown is. And this scene is very fun. They do the whole dropping papers love thing. You know, every movie and show ever has to have a scene where two characters drop something and that is what brings them together. I don't think this has ever happened in real life, but you know what? I'll roll with it as a, as a TV or movie trope. It looks like, I will say, the way people act this out looks like it makes sense. Although I don't think it would ever happen. It does look like a thing that could happen in real life, which is interesting. They are... Again, trying to figure out what Lady Whistledown is like. And then they get close together after they drop the papers and stuff. And he kind of goes in for a kiss and kind of doesn't go in for a kiss. It's clearly what he's trying to do. But he pulls back pretty quickly. He doesn't commit. He doesn't over. He doesn't overplay his hand. He goes in a little bit like he moves his face slightly closer to her face. She immediately backs her face up and he's like, oh, that was the effort. No, that was it. We're not we're not pushing this any farther. 
Uh, which is a good call from Theo. And then they have this like, uh, what? I would never. No, you, ah, uh, me, ah, uh, you misunder. What is going on? And then Eloise just decides to leave. Things got a little too romantic for Eloise. Now, I don't know if it was just that, like, she, she, she earlier in this episode struggled to, earlier in this season struggled to talk or articulate her feelings about having a crush on somebody. So this could be, I haven't, I haven't figured out how I want to read this scene yet. Like this could be Eloise just like, Oh, the idea of anything getting romantic is just too much too soon. Like she's, she's kind of here for lady Whistledown and kissing boys is not on the radar right now. And that's not what she's about. Or, or it's a sudden realization like, ah, fuck, like I do want to kiss this guy, but he's in the other class. He's lower, he's a lower printer boy, and I'm a higher Bridgerton. And that has its own problems, but they're different problems, and so we can't be together. And so I, the breakup was kind of weird, and it, I don't know, and they still need to find the writer, which is kind of weird. Because it's like, okay, Eloise, like, I get that you're breaking up with the guy. But you still got to find out who Lady Whistledown is. So how is that going to work? So this this scene just didn't flow for me perfectly because I'm just under I don't really understand the motivations going on on the on the Eloise end here. But that's okay. We 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 get there in the end. And Theo has a interesting response to this. He's saying he's pretty much saying fine. We'll go back to the lives we had. But he kind of points out that Eloise. And I'm happy that he pointed this out because it's something that I've pointed out before. He kind of points out like, okay, you had fun in my class. You had fun. You got to get your carriage and your footman and come down here and pretend to be in a, you know, you're in a printer shop and you're doing some sleuthing. But every night you get to go back home. And he's not actually saying all this, but this is what like he's trying to say. So you get to go under your big fucking bed and all the protection of your family and you get to be homies with the queen and you get to go to your balls and dances and all this stuff. And what I like about it is Eloise is very, very involved with, like directly involved with and upset with the kind of position in society that women have to play and the restrictions there and the the kind of craziness of the system where you're kind of just being sold on a marriage market in a way. And so Eloise is very in tune to that. Like she does not want to be part of this system as a woman that just grows up for the sole purpose of like getting married and having kids. Like she wants to have her own ambitions in her own life and she can't have that, but she struggles with the problems that other people have, right? Like she struggles with understanding that her position as crazy and weird and unfair and disrespectful as it is for some things, specifically how women are kind of just used to be married off and have children, right? She's not very good at realizing the advantages that her life has over other people's either. The money, the security, the food, the servants, like how she's getting in a horse and carriage system with a footman to get to this printer shop, right? You know what I mean? Well, sometimes she runs here, but like she has the options, right? And so I liked that Theo, in a way that felt fair and not just unnecessarily aggressive, but in a way that felt quite fair, was like, ah, okay, Eloise, you've got some work to do. You you have a very good analysis of your situation, but you're not really good at 
putting yourself in other people's shoes slash empathy or or just realizing that your position if you just move past the parts you hate about it which are fair you should hate all those things there are parts to your position that are very advantageous that I don't have, that you're not really understanding. So I like that one line from Theo got to spark all of this kind of thinking, you know, about, for Eloise, about her position and her privilege and all of those things. And again, life works in the gray, right? Like, we can all, we can all be upset at the way this society treats women while also acknowledging that someone like Eloise Bridgerton has a lot of privilege and, and security and food and all of these things that other people in society don't have. They're, they're not mutually exclusive. They can be happening at the same time. And I like, I like how Theo kind of pointed that out a little bit. Now that Kate has made the decision to go to India, she has shoo-shooed Anthony out of the room. She's going to go talk to Edwina. Uh, they, they, they're going to have a little question and answer session. Kate hilariously says, like, look, I don't know how long it is going to take to win your trust back. But I will do everything I can to win that trust back up until I leave to go to India and like, she says she's going to India in like a week. She has one last night out with Edwina. She has one ball. So she's not going to try very hard to win Edwina's trust back. She is just going to go to India in a week and that's going to solve her problem. So I thought that line was very, very funny. Uh, they talk, Edwina, very mature, says, hey, now I, when you were sick, I just wanted to make sure you weren't dead. But now that you're not dead and very much walking and talking, uh, I would like to ask you some questions. And she asks about, you know, why didn't you just tell me you liked the Viscount? Why did you wait for me to figure it out like a fool? And Kate kind of explains, look, dog, I, I didn't realize it till it was too late. And I tried to suppress my feelings. And folks, I think we can all agree and what we've all learned from everything in life is that you can't really suppress your feelings very well. They always find a way, however much you suppress them, they always find a way to make it back up to the surface. So um, Kate acknowledging that was refreshing. I, I enjoyed that Kate acknowledges that she thought she could kind of repress those feelings, but couldn't. Even though in the last scene, she repressed the heck out of him to tell Anthony she's going, or I don't know, I don't know. Kate's motivation, it, it, swing, it swings in roundabouts in this episode. Um, I will try so hard to win your trust back for a single week, and then I will go to India, and you will never see me again. <laughs> just, oh, Kate. Oh, Kate Sharma. Edwina has also had just a more general kind of uptick in emotional maturity. She's talking about, I don't like the characters we've been playing, Kate. I don't know you. You need to be truthful to yourself. You know, we need to move forward here, making sure that we are honest with each other, truthful to ourselves. And you're like, yes, Edwina. Yeah, you were very grumpy for the last two episodes, but... Edwina coming out of this whole predicament uh, in a more emotionally mature place is a very responsible and adult way to handle this. And I enjoyed, I, I really liked Edwina's kind of small emotional arc here where she becomes kind of the rock in the relationship, the emotionally mature one. She has absorbed all these lessons. Um, it took her a little bit of being petty and rude and mean and angry and all those things that I support. Edwina for doing uh, but now that the now that the dust is settled she's been able to come out the other side I think a more well-rounded person because of it which is ideal it's ideal it's a good thing it's a good thing for Edwina the Bridgerton house is packed with siblings as we head to this ball out on the swings Eloise and Benedict are doing a really cute and really sweet kind of repeat of their scene from season one uh, Benedict is rattled this guy looks like he's been crying for an hour or two uh, he's rattled he, he feels like an imposter Anthony bought his seat at the table and even though I'm still supporting Anthony for doing that 
I I understand why that would make Benedict feel like the whole thing was a lie and that it was fake and that he never deserved to be there in the first place. So you feel for Benedict here. He talks about, you know, it's clear now after this scene that he's never been in a relationship and he's never kind of had girlfriends or he has these like painting orgies he goes to, but that's about it. And so he, he kind of points out in Eloise the melancholy of heartbreak. And she says, what, what the fuck would you know about that? Then he talks about how he see, he's seen it in paintings. And, you know, when you look at these paintings, you can see the heartbreak. And Eloise says, like, what do you what do you find in the Bridgerton? And I forgot to write down what he said. He's like, despair, sadness, the imposterishness, you know, you know, the, the feeling you get when your brother takes your family's un, definitely unearned and inherited generational wealth and spends it on your tuition, right? Like, I guess on a donation to the Academy, but still, right? Like, Benedict is just, that's what you feel when you, when you, when you look at a Bridgerton. So Benedict's right up in the fields. Eloise also talking about being an imposter. This scene was certainly more for Benedict's um, kind of character development than Eloise's, but they decide they're going to go to the ball as an imposter party of two. And I'm fucking here for it. Cause that is cute as this. We need one swing scene in every single season. That's what I'm calling for right now. Let's dive deep requires one swings scene between Benedict and Eloise every season for all at least four seasons, but hopefully eight seasons of this television show. It is now required. Put it in the contracts because I love these scenes. On the other side of the house, somewhere inside. Actually, I don't even know if it's on the other side of the house. It could be the first door in on the left-hand side from where the swing set is. Anthony and Gregory are having a conversation. This conversation is amazing. What a good character moment for Anthony here. And it's nice to get a little bit of Gregory. You gotta start planting the seeds of some of the other siblings. We don't even have. <laughs> one of them, Fettuccine, is just lost in the sauce. Like, I don't even know <laughs> where she is. So the ones that are here, we gotta have at least a scene or two with them every season to remind us that they exist and this is a great one uh gregory comes in and says like dude bruv my latin teacher yelled at me he thinks i'm stupid and then immediately oh man you can tell anthony's not usually one to have these conversations because gregory immediately tries to leave as if it was like all a mistake like, oh never mind this anthony's not going to do anything about it so yeah sorry for bothering you but then anthony anthony to his credit's like no no, no stick around stick around look Gregory, don't take it to heart. He's not, he doesn't think you're stupid. He thinks I'm terrifying, which makes sense. Yeah, I kind of pay the bills and I'm a jerk all the time. So that would make sense. That's tracking. And he starts talking about how he asked too much, too much of the Latin teacher, too much of Gregory, too much of everyone else. And he, I don't know how true that is. We don't get a ton of behind the scenes stuff like Anthony and the Latin teacher, but Anthony's kind of talking about it and expressing it so we can believe him. Gregory asks questions about his dad, which is really cute. Um, he's like, hey, was he like me? Was he like you? Uh, you know, what? I don't know much about him. And then Anthony's like, yeah, we should, we should talk about him more, shouldn't we? And then goes to tell goes to tell Gregory, like, hey, he... There's some of the writing here was ineloquent, right? It's like, he fought for his family. Great. Great line. And for everything else, too. Like, what? Wait, 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 pause, pause the tape. What else? Like, what are, and for everything else too, it's just, that was a bit, a little bit poor writing for me. Like, okay, like what is everything else? Anyways, um, still a cute moment that's kind of happening here. They talk about pranks and how 
you know, Gregory really wanted to play a prank on his dad. And this is just kind of heart wrenching in a small way. Then Anthony's like, yo, dad was the fucking funniest. He one time he put glue in Benedict's shoes. And I'm like, is that is that a pr- I guess for 1814, that's a prank. But can we be a little more creative than just putting glue in somebody's shoes? Otherwise, though, very, very funny. Very good conversation the the main kind of throughput here that we're trying to get is the anthony kind of says it out loud he's like i have shown up far too late um for far too many things and it's like true 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 let's acknowledge that you haven't exactly done the best job however i put in my notes and i will stand by this your family has been anything but helpful in a, in a in a good way in a way that's respectable and reasonable and that i understand but in a way that's still true eloise is out at the fucking theater and we all support eloise's business going out there but she's doing that thing at the beginning of season one despite how poor of a job you did you were trying to get daphne to marry somebody that was reputable and all of that stuff did again did a terrible job was at least trying you're out here you know benedict wants to paint you're out here throwing your your influence around to get benedict into the art school he wants to go to so he has shown up late for some things but i think it's a based on what i can see in the show a misrepresentation of anthony to say he has been absolutely awful at his job because he's he's tried he has tried and his family does not make it easy and it doesn't help that mama bridgerton is just like bad like every 10 seconds just has completely changed her mind about what anthony needs to do or should and should not be doing and it's just yeah anything but helpful the rest of the bridgerton stab and hyacinth was like stomping out on him two scenes ago this episode for absolutely no reason again unhelpful what is really nice about this scene too, though, despite the bonding from Anthony and Gregory, or aside from the bonding of Anthony and Gregory, is that Mama Bridgerton and Violet's out there listening to this, and this is just nice. It would have been nice to to hear your sons talking about, you know, your your the love of your life, your husband, and all that. So just wonderful scene, very very cute. Instead of wedding prep, it is ball prep, but we have more Sharma prep nonetheless. And nevertheless, anyways, it's so early in the morning. Remind me never to record these podcasts early in the morning ever again. Kate and Mama Sharma are talking about things, and she says that Mama Sharma says that she hopes Kate's return to India is not because of fleeing something difficult. I've tried it, it is almost never the right choice, which I paused the episode because wasn't Kate, no, sorry, not Kate. Wasn't Mama Sharma's running away with her husband, like, the whole reason Edwina is born? You know what I mean? Like, because Kate was part of the package. Kate was already around and was kind of inherited as a daughter by Mama Sharma. But it was her, because that's what created everything with the Sheffields, is that she ran away and lived in India with this guy. And she's saying it wasn't the right choice. Which is interesting to me, because then Edwina wouldn't exist, question mark, question mark. Or is she saying it would have been better for them to still get married and all that, but to stay here? There is just something about, again, the writing here is just a little flimsy for me, because it kind of sounds like Mary Sharma doesn't quite remember the order in which this stuff happened. I'm assuming that she wants Edwina to exist, and so I'm assuming what she's trying to say it's like, we shouldn't have run away from England. We should have stayed. We should have, you know, done... We should have put up with the gossip. We should have done all that stuff. And we should have stuck it out here. But I don't know. Anyway, writing a little bit 
flimsy here. Uh, Mama Sharma is doing a good job with the apology, though, apologizing for all the things that are genuinely her fault that make a lot of sense. Like, hey, you should not have been left alone to deal with this. It was uh, it was up to me to look after our family. You know, you were grieving, but I was also grieving, so that's not a good excuse. Great apology from... We love a good apology here on, on Let's Dive Deep. So Mama Sharma coming in with a certified good uh, apology. Kate talking about love a little bit and about how, you know, I'm not even your daughter. I owed everything I had to you. And Mary Sharma with the heartbreaking, like, love is never owed. Oh, just melts my heart. Love is not something that is ever owed. Wonderfully optimistic line. You know, we talk a lot about love having a cost and a price and all of that stuff. And it's true. But love is not something that is ever owed is just oh, perfect line. Such a good line. Good work, Mama Sharma. Absolutely love that line. Um, and Mama Sharma's pretty much talking Kate into marrying Anthony. And Kate, to my surprise, kind of outs that they fucked on the garden terrace. Or kind of, I don't know. You don't need, you don't need, you don't need a penis to have sex, right? Like, that's still, we'll call it sex. I, I still interpret that scene as being penislessness. What did I just say? I can't, I'm not allowed to have a podcast anymore. Anyways, um, penisless? Yeah, I added the nest there. Anyway, sorry, sorry. I apologize to everyone listening to this. Um, <laughs> how, how do you put this podcast back on the track? We're an hour and 30 minutes. I guess for you, it's an hour and 15 minutes or whatever. Whatever, okay, let's keep going here. Um, Kate pretty much outs that that's what happened. You know, he came to marry me after we, and then you know what, after Mama Sharma knows what after we is. And the Mama Shepherd's like, Kate, you fucking deserve love too. I forgive you. Edwina forgives you. The dog forgives you. Lady Danbury's partying with the queen again. Like, go out there. You deserve love too. And it's like, yeah, Kate, you are also a daughter. You can go get married. You can have a family. You can live your best life. And I, Mama Sharma here, redemption moment for Mama Sharma. Absolutely killing it. Um, But... I put in my notes, it's crazy, it's crazy here that Kate says he doesn't love me. Absolutely crazy. Like, like Kate is a smart person. Kate is a very smart person. And I do think, to be slightly fair to her, she's kind of looking to move love separate from honor and duty. She wants someone to purely love her but not because of any kind of honor or duty bound reasons. And I think in this society, that's very hard to do and kind of unfair to expect because they're so closely intertwined together, especially for someone like Anthony. However, for her to just say flat out, he doesn't love me is ridiculous. We all watched the garden terrace scene. Like he came and saved your life. He came and saved your life. Maybe she's kind of picturing her head like, okay, so he was following me because he wanted to marry me because of honor and duty because we did the thing at the terrace and he doesn't actually love me. He just wants to, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's crazy for Kate's big takeaway here to be that he doesn't love her. That's what I find crazy. Uh, and then she says, I could not allow it. Like, oh my goodness. Oh my, just, just. Anthony even said it before you did the whole garden stuff. You know, do something for yourself. To do something, have a mental health day. Have a, you know, five-minute smoke break. You know, whatever it is. I, I don't recommend smoking. You you shouldn't smoke. Your lung cancer, all that stuff is very bad. Don't smoke. But, like, do have some self-care. Read a book. 
uh, go have a massage. I don't know. Like there are things that's, that's what I, that Kate just needs to realize that Anthony does love her and the evidence is there. She just hasn't said it out loud, but also like self-care, Kate, you deserve all this stuff too. Finally, it is time for the Featherington ball. The outside, the, the, the setup shot for the Featherington house was really, they got a nice house. They got a really nice house. The Featheringtons have been feigning poor this whole time because their house is fucking rocking. It's a cool place to be. Uh, we go into the ball. There's lots of stuff happening here, so we might go a little bit out of order, but we got to cover everything that happens in this ball. Uh, cheese and sneezes. The, the cheese and sneeze wife, uh, not Prudence, not Penelope. Philippa is back to dunk on Prudence, which is hilarious. Love that. She doesn't even seem concerned that Prudence wants like this giant wedding after her wedding had exactly like four people in the drawing room, but that's okay. The queen is in the house. The queen makes her way in, which of course for Lady Featherington... She says, this ball is the crowning achievement of my life. Like, just fucking useless. Like, these people are useless. Absolutely drains on this. I guess, I guess the part we're not seeing is where all of these families are also lords in, like, parliament. You know, passing laws and stuff. But within Bridgerton, like, just absolute drains on society. Like, my crowning achievement. Hosting a ball for the queen in my living room. Whatever. Okay, Mama Featherington. With... With all the money we stole from all the people we invited to this ball. Like, uh, yeah, okay, crowning achievement. Cool. Mama Bridgerton is being nice to Eloise. That's a, that's a turnaround from where we normally are with Eloise. Eloise is trying to leave. I can't do this. Sorry, you know, everyone's looking at me. We, I was in the papers and that, that scandal has not gone away yet. And Mama Bridgerton pretty much saying, the only thing that would disappoint me now is if you started caring what other people thought of you. Because you've been so good about not caring up until this point. And great turnaround from Mama Bridge. Just in time for Benedict to come around and, you know, they say steady and ready. Like, oh, first introducing the steadiness part of it for Kate later. But also, like, the steady and ready stuff with Benedict. Ah, oh, such a good stuff. I love this. Love this setup at the ball for Eloise and, and Benedict and, and Mama Bridgerton here. Now that Eloise is inside the ball, we track over to Penelope, who, you know, has got the drink. She's standing on the side of the room. She's collecting her gossip for Lady Whistledown. Eloise comes over and talks to her, and <laughs> Penelope... Oh my goodness. So Eloise comes over and talks to her and says, Hey, hey, I'm done looking for Lady Whistledown. I've done with Theo. Game over. Everyone wins except for me. And that's fine. We're just going to drop it. And so Penelope right now, right now at this moment has won. It has all been worth it. She's won. No one is looking for her. You know, Eloise has stopped the search. She's not seeing Theo anymore. She's collecting your gossip. And I, I put him in my nose. Search is over. Here we go. We're never going to find her. Wait, what's that? Penelope stealing defeat from the jaws of victory? Penelope can't fucking help herself. She's got to give Eloise the performance. The papers do not do a good enough job. She's got to show Eloise that she... <laughs> just crazy. You just won. You've just won. And then she's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do Lady Whistledown off the page in front of Eloise to really hammer home to her that it's me this whole time. And she starts talking about, she picked up this rumor from the footman, you know, 10 seconds ago that Lord Fife with it was in a closet for 20 minutes with someone. And I, that's, you know what, 20 minutes in a closet? That's a decent chunk of time. That's fun. That's a fun time in a closet. If someone like asked me, what's your ideal amount of time in a closet? 20 minutes, maybe. Like what? More than that, it's still a closet. It's not comfortable or anything. 
but less than that like was there really a point 20 minutes i'm with lord fife on this one that's if that was the rumor going around yeah whatever sure that's fine Anyways, Penelope's talking about it like, hey, Lord Fife, you know, closet 20 minutes. That woman over there, she's stuffing her corset with stuff, which is crazy because those corsets do a very good. I feel like there's a lot of um, there's a lot of chest in Bridgerton, right? I don't want to say there's a lot of boob because there's not, but there's a lot of chest and like cleavage and upper boob area that the corsets do a very good job of handling. And they're also, my impression of a corset, it's a pretty rigid thing. Like, stuffing a corset does not work the same way as, like, stuffing a bra would if you were to wear, like, a thin t-shirt over top of it. If that makes sense. I, I understand as a man on a podcast describing this, I am out of my depth. However, my impression of the whole thing is that the corsets already do most of the work and are less affected by potential stuffage than a normal kind of 2022 bra and t-shirt setup would be. I'm sure I've just earned 100 emails correcting me, but we'll see. Anyways, the point of this whole thing happening is that Eloise gets this look on her face, which just is perfect. I like that Eloise figures it out. I kind of wish that they didn't have so many aha moments, like Edwina figuring it out with Kate, then Eloise figuring it out with this, and then later you have, you know, Miss Featherington figuring it out exactly, oh, he doesn't care about my daughters or whatever, right? However, we'll take it, isolated, this is a good moment for Eloise to figure it out. I buy it, I know a lot of people um, online have been saying that it felt forced or rushed, or not rushed, but like forced, and that there's no way Eloise would have missed all the other context clues to figure it out. But I'll say this, and I used in, my, in the instant reaction, I used the Chernobyl example. If you just do not think something is possible, you believe that it is simply not possible, you're not on the radar looking for it. If you watch the show Chernobyl and then kind of dive in yourself in, into how Chernobyl happened, um, there's a lot of denial that the reactor exploded, right? And a lot of the decisions that they made that caused the reactor to explode don't make any sense now that you know that it's exploded. But at the time, at the time, this reactor has a shutoff button, right? And if you fuck it up, if whatever you do, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's bad. You can really fuck this thing up. However, there's always a shutoff button and it always works. And no matter what happens, you press the button, everything shuts down, and it never blows up. It's not capable of blowing up. So when they were making all these bad choices, they just had never even considered that the thing blowing up was an option. Now, it turned out to be an option, but they didn't think that, which makes their choices in retrospect a lot easier to understand. If they knew the thing was going to blow up at the end of it, they wouldn't have made those choices, but they were under the impression that it wouldn't, so they did. This is the same with Eloise, the same kind of principle here. She, it had never occurred to her. It had never even remotely occurred to her that Penelope could be Lady Whistledown, right? It had never once crossed her mind that this could be a thing. And so when Penelope was giving all those clues, they just didn't click exactly, right? You're not on the lookout for them, right? If she had gone in with the impression like, oh, I reckon it's Penelope who's Lady Whistledown and then heard all those clues, it would have made a lot of sense. So for me, it tracks really well that it took a lot of really obvious clues for her to figure it out. And it took Eloise getting that performance in real time with Penelope for her to figure it out. Because Eloise just didn't know that it could be her, which I hope my explanation of this makes sense because to me, this tracked really well. And I think a lot of people who 
didn't like it, kind of forgot how our brains work in a way, and we all do this all the time. We just simply do not think something is possible, and so we make decisions that will make it worse in order to, right? It, because we don't think the bad outcome could possibly happen, and then it happens, and you're like, well, in retrospect, that was a terrible idea. It's the same thing here with Eloise. Like, if she had, if she had considered that Penelope could be Lady Whistledown, that was even an option to her, it would have been figured out a while ago. But because it wasn't, it took her a longer amount of time, which completely tracks with me. And I, I, I enjoy, I really liked this kind of resolution, where, or the point at which Eloise figures out that Penn is Lady Whistledown. I, I really enjoyed it. I liked it a lot. Kate and Edwina are dancing, and it's cute, and everyone's looking at, looking at them all scandalized or whatever, which is fine. Uh, the only note I have about this dance is that Edwina brings up social capital, which <laughs> I just think it's fun that Edwina is kind of aware of their social capital. I suppose that's something you would have to be actively aware of. I just hadn't heard that term kind of articulated in Bridgerton before, but essentially... This is all these things are, is you're going in, you have this certain amount of social capital, and you're trying to increase the amount of social capital you have while gossiping the heck and, like, gossiping the social capital away from everyone else. So I just like that Edwina phrased it like that. It's a very, like, 2022 phrase just put right into Bridgerton. So that was pretty funny. Colin is dancing with Lady Cowper, and he says, yo, you're dancing with a disgraced Bridgerton. And she says, hey, I like to keep people on their toes, which you know what? It's great. I like that from Lady Calper. That's a fun way to live. I uh, this this season did a better job of making Cressida Calper just simply unlikable, but not like an out and out like villain or whatever. Like she's just an unlikable person, which is fine. But this this line was cool. And Colin, we learn, has figured it out. He knows about the necklaces, so he is dancing with Lady Calper to pretend the clasp is broken, so the valet the Bridgerton valet he he does the hard T I guess valet is the person who moves your cars and the valet is the person who fixes your jewelry but I guess they didn't have cars I don't know have we just decided in retrospect later in life that it's valet instead of valet or is valet the English word and in Canada we just use the French word valet is valet I don't even know if valet is a French word whatever I'm getting off track here uh it doesn't matter y'all can email me about the, the origins of the word valet but uh, we get the necklace. Colin gets the necklace and it's fake as so he is going to take Penelope to show her. And he's doing this kind of heroically like, hey, I figured it out. I got to go get Penelope. I got to show her she needs to. We need to tell the ladies Featherington that there is a problem here so that they're aware of it. He, it doesn't occur to him that that Miss Featherington is in on the thing, but that's OK. That's fine. In the room with Penelope, you might think, I bet you there are going to be consequences for them being in a room together unchaperoned because we keep learning that there are consequences and it turns out there aren't. It doesn't matter. I, I suspect part of this, you know, Lady Featherington does say, what is the meaning of this when they barge in? So maybe there would have been if he didn't like out them as frauds. So Colin breaks the necklace. There are no gemstone mines in Georgia. You're a fraud. And Lady Featherington pretends to be you know, all like shocked. Oh, thank God for Mr. Bridgerton. <laughs> like, which again, this is another example to Colin. It's just unimaginable that Lady Featherington could have any role in this. So despite the context clues that would allow him to believe that it's true, right? He kind of just ignores them all because to him, there's just no way it could be true. It's the same kind of thing going on here as well. Um, he makes either a very good or a very bad choice. And I suppose we'll see. And I understood his meaning. He kind of does the, he does the move where 
you let the bad guy know your plan, but you let him leave, you know? And I don't know what Colin's power status is. What, what am I trying to say here? I don't know what Colin's ability to do anything else was. However, he says, look, I know you're a fraud. I know you swindled everyone. You're going to give all the money back and you're going to get out of town or I will tell everybody. But his justification of only doing this to protect the reputation of the other Featheringtons, that felt true to me. That felt really true to me. Like that is a good reason to be doing this. So we'll see if cousin Jack Featherington um, comes back into the story or uses this money in some kind of nefarious way or, you know, makes Colin regret kind of letting him leave. But for Colin here, I like this move. He, he figured it out earlier when Mondrant said something. Fair enough. And he's taken this time to do some research and he's come in and he's given the guy an ultimatum. This is all good stuff from Colin here. After they have been outed, Cousin Jack is like, okay, no worries. We got the money all packed. I like they actually have to pack the <laughs> pack the cash. There's no like debit cards in 1814. So the cash is actually packed in a suitcase, which is pretty funny. Um, what I learned from this scene though, again, this Polly Walker interview that I read was kind of weird to me because she, Miss Featherington, does not commit fully to the scam. I don't understand. Like, I get it. I get it. But also, I don't get it. Because most of this was her idea. He is the only one committed to the actual scam. Like, okay, we came here. We took all their money. They're starting to figure it out. We got to leave. We have to leave now so that we don't get busted for this. And she is like, no. I'm staying here. My daughters are staying here. And I understand that she's going to like magic deus ex machina, deus ex machina away out of this. And it's going to be fine or whatever. Right. But in this moment, she's trying to stay here and not commit to the scam. But after she's stolen all the money and spent it on the ball, they're currently at so the money's already been spent, or at least a large portion of it has already been spent. I just, Miss Featherington does not want to lie in the bed that she's made. And Cousin Jack is at least committing fully to the scam and the follow through, which I don't like the scamming, but I at least admire the person willing to go through with it. Mama Featherington is trying to have the cake and eat it too. Like she wants to scam all the money away and she wants to have all this money and be a respectable family in, on the ton. But also... Once she figures out that this plan isn't going to work, she doesn't want to like actually commit to the outcome of it, which is, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Colin and Penn decide to go dancing though. And that's very cute. And I like that for them. And I'm glad it is their season next because I am shipping them. They are cute. Back over with Edwina and Kate. Edwina notices Kate kind of looking at Anthony. And I find it weird that she explicitly endorses this. I mentioned this on my instant reaction. I understand how she's kind of emotionally got to the point where she's cool if Kate and Anthony are a thing because they actually like each other and she's kind of over. But for her to like be the catalyst of it was kind of weird for me in a way that I I don't know. I don't know. It just felt not in a way that I hold it against her or anything or that I thought it made the show worse, but just in a way that felt kind of off to me that Edwina was like, you can't avoid him all night and you shouldn't avoid him all night, at least not on my account. It's like, okay, but should she avoid him? Like, I don't know. Anyways, uh, Edwina says like, hey, go and um, go and talk to Anthony. You can't avoid him all night, at least not on my account. And Kate goes over to Anthony. She is going to take what is hers. She's going to get what 
she wants. She runs into Anthony. He says he is going outside. Um, and that considering all of the, he kind of struggles through his words. He's kind of like trying to say, considering everything we should, you know, keep our space. So we don't, uh, do another garden terrace again before you go back to uh, India. And then, uh, she's like, or maybe we should not keep our space. And I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> Big win for Kate Sharma. We should not keep our space. Oh, it's all coming together. This is so good. Right. When you're watching this, you're like, yes, thank goodness. And then she kind of talks through this whole scenario. I had a bad accident. I hit my head. I woke up. I've come to a ball really quick. It's only been a week. And perhaps I was feeling unsteady. And, uh, you know, perhaps I needed someone to steady me. And perhaps you were the only person or the first person that I found. And you're like, yes, this is so hot. And then Anthony, oh, and the sexiest, this is the, se okay, I, I don't know where this goes. I don't know if it's above the cover of wildest dreams from season one in terms of just sexiness overload however him doing concussion protocol from like 2022 in terms of the sexiest things that we've taken from the future and brought to 1814 concussion protocol has got to be the best one he really playfully like holds up three fingers when she says three he turns it around to four just absolutely that might be the hottest thing that happened all season i'm not gonna lie that was like i was like oh i feel things i felt something in that moment and then they go to dance then they go to dance and even even the entrance to this dance is kind of romantic where she says are you gonna ask me to dance like yes take what's yours kate and he says are you gonna say yes and it's like oh and you're just like you're just like in a puddle on the ground being like i waited eight hours for this oh so good and then they start dancing and the song is wrecking ball which is absolutely perfect um there were a lot of songs i wanted to see in this season none of them got covered in this season however wrecking ball is the perfect choice for this moment here um basically that's how they came together they are two wrecking balls in each other's lives and that just it just was it, it is the perfect song for this moment uh this dance is super romantic they're kind of going at it it's not i don't know if it's more romantic or better than the other one they did at aubrey hall i believe it was in episode three but this one's pretty good and everyone leaves the dance floor, of course, because they are social nobodies. And it's a huge scandal. Not only is it a scandal that Anthony is out there like dancing and stuff and Kate's out there dancing, but dancing with each other when he was the intended of uh, the sister of the person he's dancing with. Oh, boy. Scandal, 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 scandal. Uh, all these other people suck eggs. And then they're talking and she kind of has this moment like, do you want to stop? Whereas she, in a, in a crazy turn of events, is looking out for kind of his reputation. Right, he kind of looks around, looks at him and goes, hey, if you want to stop, you you know, you have your honor and your reputation and stuff, which is a great turnaround from Kate. He's like, no, look at me. No one else matters. Oh, so good. And then the queen comes in and saves the day. The dumbest argument ever. The queen is about to say some dumb stuff, but it works and it's clutch and she's the queen. So she can say whatever she wants. She basically says... Or someone says, ah, is this the reason, the, the, the attraction between these two, is this the reason the, uh, the wedding with the other Sharma got canceled? And the queen is like, no, no, silly cowper, be put backeth in your place. That wedding was canceled because I simply changed my mind. I do really enjoy how the queen is even looking at this dance and going, this is so fucking hot that I am going to retroactively decide that I'm actually totally cool with the other wedding 
being canceled when I totally wasn't cool with it just because I'm into how much that they like each other. So the queen kind of saving the day. Uh, I just find it funny. Like I changed my mind at the last possible second via, you know, implanted Bluetooth ear, whatever with Edwina that she should sprint away from the altar at the last second. The whole story doesn't line up, but Hey, everyone needs to believe it. And she has this moment too, where she's like, Oh, aren't they beautiful? No one says anything. Aren't they? And then everyone's like, oh, yes, of course, ma'am. Yes, your majesty, they're the most beautiful ever. <laughs> and she's like, why is no one dancing? And then everyone goes back to the dance floor. And they should. They should be ashamed of themselves. And they're back on the dance floor now. And everything's everything's better. And Edwina's going to get hooked up with the prince. The queen coming in clutch one more time. And I I'm, I shipped Edwina and that prince. That prince was cool. I think he's, it wasn't that the guy that played Cormac McLegan. We liked that prince, though. He was a good guy. He was the one that was really respectful to Daphne, and we liked that. Um, I put the, <laughs> I put in my notes, and this is because I'm immature, and I like to have fun when I take my notes. I put in my notes, <laughs> Kate, and, <laughs> Kate and Anthony should do an alpha maneuver and fuck right on the dance floor. That would show them who's boss. That would show them how romantic this is. They don't do that, which is the correct choice. But I put in my notes for a single moment. Wouldn't that be a fun turn of events? Um, the queen, uh, the queen kind of walked over after the dance, the queen kind of walks by them and nods at them. Like, yeah, that was the sexiest thing I have ever witnessed. Now that Kate and Anthony seem to have it made, the relationship is, has the approval of the queen and the rest of society just with a snap of her fingers. <laughs> we move over to Penelope's bedroom. Penelope is looking all good. Cousin Jack's been busted. Colin danced with her. Things are looking up, and then she opens the door, and who is there? It is Eloise. And I have in my notes that we have a giant ethical dilemma alert that I don't know how to properly move through. However, we will be trying to figure out, do the ends justify the means? For Eloise, you have been shamed in the paper. You have realized it is your best friend. Um, your best friend has, you know, ran this article about you that has caused all of society to, you know, hate you overnight. And you respond to this by going through her things without permission to confirm that it is indeed her. How do we feel about this? I listened. So part of what's great about having watched the whole season is that I can listen to the other Bridgerton podcasts. Believe it or not, there are other very good Bridgerton podcasts out there. and. You know, I saw and heard, I haven't listened to all of them, obviously, but I heard, I listened to little bits and pieces, kind of where I wanted to double check my analysis with theirs and to see like, hey, I was feeling good about this. You know, how are you feeling about it? You know, and I came across a podcast that was really heavy in the Penelope defense, very heavy here in this section of the episode with the defense of Penelope. And I just don't think that's where I'm at. And again, this all happens in the gray. Eloise should not be going through uh, someone's room without permission, kind of flipping over all their things to confirm that she is Lady Whistledown. However, if Lady Whistledown had written all that bullshit about you, you'd probably feel like you should do the same thing. So it's all happening in the gray here. And uh, she walks in. Eloise is being confronted now about this whole thing. And Eloise kind of does her, here's how I found you speech, where she's like, ah, 
the way the words this this part is a little ridiculous but the, the writing is a little too much for me it's just a little too much but it gets the point across where she's like you know the way you were saying it the way you were kind of walking on the wall the way you kind of knew all the gossip the way it was kind of flowing through when i was hearing it it just kind of sounded like lady whistledown and penelope it starts by being you're just imagining it don't be so silly which again like if you're her big defense is to call her best friend stupid like oh you're just being stupid don't you're just imagining these things you stupid stupid friend so i don't know i'm not i there are parts of this that eloise does wrong for sure and eloise is not blameless but i am defending eloise more than penelope here absolutely um once penelope has no choice but to cave and admit she's laid a whistle down then she says if, with the running uh the 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 scandal sheet on eloise she says it was the only way i could convince the queen and save you which is just a load of bullshit like f fill the bullshit dump truck up and fucking pour it on the bedroom floor right now this is the biggest load of shit I have ever heard. It is the oh no, it wasn't. You literally poo-pooed the way where you just admitted to the queen it was you because the queen would listen or whatever. Penelope went and went through all of the options that could implicate her instead and said none of those were good. The only way I can do this uh, in while still protecting myself is to run the hit piece on Eloise. So absolute garbage bullshit. That she's like, it was the only way I had to, to convince the queen and save you. To be fair, what else are you going to say? That's probably what I would say as well. But it is certainly, certainly not true. And then Eloise starts going on about all the other things. Like You're the only person that could have known about Marina and Colin and all these things. And you, you're, your scandal sheet is not the first. This is not the first time that someone in my family has been affected by it. And that's also a fair point. It's not just Eloise here. I'm, I'm just with Eloise on this. Overall, there are parts of this, mainly Eloise just barging into her room and turning her room over. That feels like a lot for me. That's not, that's not cool. Mostly everything else, though, I'm with Eloise, if I had to pick a side here. Um, Eloise is kind of still dressing down Penelope. Penelope starts crying and all of that stuff. She's talking her shit about it. It's the only way uh, we could do it. And then she says, I wrote what I wrote and I gave it up for you, which is fair, I suppose. Like, good work. After, after you wrote the hippies on Eloise, you stopped writing the pamphlet. That does not fucking change that you wrote the hippies on Eloise. Like, I don't, I don't know what she's trying to say here. Like, uh, Eloise, you should be happy that I stopped writing so I can't write a more of a hit piece on you is not a very good defense. And I know what she's trying to say is that it was the only thing I had. You know, I don't have the opportunity to go into society like everyone else. My family isn't the most reputable. We don't have the most amount of money. This pamphlet was the one thing I had and I gave it up for you. But only after you wrote the hit piece on her instead of giving it up. In a, so I'm just not buying this. It makes sense. I get what she's saying. It's just not a good defense of the situation. So I'm still in Team Eloise here, for sure. And then, interestingly enough, Eloise kind of goes out, you're just an insipid wallflower, which, in terms of all the insults I could think of throwing at Penelope, that was pretty tame from Eloise, I think. And she starts barging out, and then Penelope gets all defensive, like, 
like something that you can't stand it, that you have all these dreams and ambition and things you want to do. And then I actually go out and do something. And it's like, I think she can stand it just fine. The thing that you go out, like the thing that you went out and did was slander her in the press. Like this is not a good argument to bring to Eloise. And I'm not saying Penelope should have better arguments, right? Like it is not the flaw of a character to have bad arguments here. I think Penelope's in the wrong and she shouldn't have good arguments. There are no good arguments. So I'm happy she's throwing out the bad ones. It's what I would do, right? But that does not mean they're not bad arguments. It's like, I think she can stand it just fine. I think she's just mad because you fucked with her in the paper. Like, I think that's what she's mad about. I don't think it goes much deeper than that. And then I put in my notes, I have no idea how to gauge how big of an insult being called an insepid wallflower is. But on the way out, Eloise says, I never wish to speak to you again. Just, oh, daggers, daggers. And I would feel bad for Penn, but again, between that and the Insepid Wallflower still does not add up to a hit piece. So we're still we're still under even for for Eloise here. She still has a little more she can still throw a little more weight around before I would call it even for the the hit piece in the paper. The other Featheringtons are also not having a great time. We get this really weird resolution, I suppose, to this Featherington thing. I just I think I I don't mind the resolution per se. All of this was kind of set up. Some of it in season one, like Varley having a good signature and those types of things and Mama Featherington loving her daughters. You just, it kind of just jumped from the last couple of scenes where they were going to have to move and she wasn't having any of it to like, ah, I figured out this master plan to get you out of here where I can stay with all my daughters and all the money. So it felt kind of convenient and kind of deus ex machina-y. If there's any plot line that kind of just where I didn't mind the ending, but I minded kind of the specifics of how it ended. It would be this one. She says, uh, he's coming up and they're looking at the fireworks and everything, which is beautiful. And he's like, well, we got to go. We threw a fun farewell party. And then she's like, I threw a fun farewell party for you. And he's like, what do you mean? And she goes through her, her detailed plan about how she's packed everything. She's everything's good to go. He's going to have enough money to go back to America and leave the family alone. There are a few holes to this plan that I want to bring up, but also, but also one of the things that I found again, really weird about her character. She's like, I am a mother. Like the whole reason she's doing this is because she loves her daughters. Yet she was like willing to marry her own daughter to her cousin for no fucking reason other than it would maybe mean that he would treat them less poorly, but it was never evidence that he was going to treat them poorly. So I don't know. Like it just, yeah, like she's one of those characters that is just so unaware of their own self in terms of like how, how their actions, why are people slack messaging me? Why are why I'm, or do you not know people working right now? Do you not know that I am doing a very important thing on my day off and I am recording a podcast about Bridgerton? Anyway, sorry, I've muted Slack now. How dare, how dare the people I work with need to talk to me? Fucking nuts, these people. Anyways, so, <laughs> nah, I work with good people. Um, yeah, this resolution, like, she's just so unaware of how her actions match up with how she perceives herself to be in a way that I find bizarre. But otherwise, I like this plan from her. All of the little bits of the plan were set up pretty well. I do believe that this is a plan that she could execute. I do believe that Varley could forge the signature and get the people to pack everything and all that stuff. The part that I don't get is 
that so he's gonna go back to america with none of the money and you're gonna have all of the money here but not all of it because you already spent a large chunk of it on this ball that they're currently at and so like what why doesn't he like what right she even says they're gonna be pissed when she find when they find out you took all the money but he didn't right so like what's gonna happen is they're all gonna find out that he took all their money and they're not getting any of it back because most of it was already spent cool but then what's stopping him from America to just writing a letter to the Tawn and being like, yo, she, she, the money that's left, she still has it. Like, go get it. Like, I don't know. I don't know what's stopping him from just retaliating in this regard. And maybe that's the point. Maybe the point is she hasn't really thought this through. I, yeah, that's the part that I don't quite understand is I'm not sure what's stopping him from the retaliation part of it. If that makes sense. So we'll see how this goes. It was a little bit much for me, the resolution to the storyline. I believe each individual part of it could happen. I just don't believe that it all happened in like an hour at this ball. We go outside and so many fun things are happening outside. Pen is looking for Eloise. I think Penelope's realized that she, I think this is the evidence that Penelope's in the wrong. She even realizes it. She looks like she's going to find Eloise and properly apologize. Um... Man, I just, I just, I want to defend Penelope so much, but I just, I guess the way my, my morals and everything have been constructed throughout my life, I just feel like she's in more of the, again, it all happens in the gray, they're all a little bit wrong here, but I feel like Penelope's just way more in the wrong than Eloise, am I wrong for thinking that? Is that the bad opinion to have? Anyways, Penn's looking for Eloise. Call, she, on her way to look for Eloise, she runs by Colin and the little lads fucking locker room talk again. The lads are talking to him about Penelope and they're like, hey, you were dancing with her interestingly. Are you courting Penelope Featherington? And he, of course, he has to say like, absolutely not. I would never court Penelope Featherington. And she runs away. So, you know, good setup for season three, good setup for their relationship. Really sad for Penelope to have to hear that. Really kind of shitty for Colin um, to, to say that. I think the, the line was like, I would never dream of courting Penelope Featherington. You're allowed to just say like, oh, Penelope's lovely. I don't know if I'm courting her though. We just had a dance. Like you could say it nicer. You could be nicer, Colin, and it would be less problematic. But no, instead he has to be a dick. Penelope has to overhear it and she runs off crying, which is fair enough because she loves him. So that's the setup for season three going on here um benedict confirms to anthony that he's leaving the academy this is very very silly because anthony's like wait a second what do you mean like go paint if you want to paint go paint and benedict's like no i don't want to do that <laughs> and um and then anthony says like you're starting to, i like that you're starting to sound like me which was a, such a fun line and so i i i'm with anthony here benedict leaving the academy on the whole is silly like I thought that once he'd calmed down a little bit and once he kind of moved through the situation, it would be a little more clear that it's probably worth still staying into the Academy and his being purchased, the, like his spot being purchased in the Academy is not so unusual considering everything else in his life is purchased for him. But, you know, it is what it is. And Anthony has a good moment where he's being a good brother and he's like, hey, like painting is your thing. It's, it kind of makes use of your one of your best qualities which is knowing what others need before they know they need it. And just, ah, good brothering. Anthony having a good brothering moment with Benedict is nice for all of the moments Benedict has had a good brothering moments for Anthony. Anthony and Kate have their big moment, their big kind of final moment where they agree to be together. No more going back to India. Anthony's approach to the situation 
kind of asks about India and everything. And then he does what I think is the best play and which I always fall for. I always fall for this in real life, in books, in movies, in TV shows. The I'm going to tell you how I feel and then you can do what you want with that information. Now, I want to put the caveat that in real life, people aren't uh, people aren't, you know, just sponges for your burdens where you can just dump your feelings on them at any time for no reason. There's a lot of nuances to my take here, but like when and where and how you should be dumping your feelings on others. However, in this case, this is one of those things that I would deem very, a very appropriate thing to do. Like, look, Kate, I just love, it. I love you. I love you. I do. I do. I know you think it's all honor and duty, but I love you. And I loved you at every ball, at every dance, on every walk. I loved you when I got pushed into the water. I loved you when Benedict was bitching to me about his doodles and stuff. Like, I loved you through the entire thing from the day I met you until right now. You, you can go back to India. You can stay here. We can get married. Whatever you want to do with that information, it's yours now. But I just needed to tell you that before you leave. Very romantic. Very well done by Anthony. And then Kate says, Kate! Kind of kind of forgetting that she this whole time has been in this episode the one who didn't want to marry him was like, I guess there's only one thing left to say. That I love you too. And you're like, yes, we've done it. We have made it eight hours in and we are finally here. They have said the words out loud. <laughs> they love each other. Anthony says, I know I am imperfect, but I'll humble myself before you. Just, oh. So romantic. We're we're all in horny jail right now. And then he throws out the Kathani Sharma, which is just maybe that's the sexiest thing that happens in this season. Knowing I, I like this from the writers to give Kate an Indian name because to me it just adds a little bit of depth to the diversity of the show. And I like it because you can do performative diversity, which sometimes is like I don't want to write off performative diversity because that is still when you're trying to dive, when you're trying to add or ensure not add but when you're trying to ensure uh, appropriate diversity right performative diversity is a part of that having a lot of characters in Bridgerton look like people in real life even if those characters in the show are just you know kind of supporting artists walking around is still important as we go through Bridgerton we see lots of um, Asian characters moving around behind the scenes we see lots of people of color moving around behind the scenes and as some of our main characters right so it's still important to do that but when you bring those characters into the main character right and as far as I know Kate is not Indian in the books like this is a complete invention that she is an Indian character in the show to, to to add that other level of detail to give her an Indian name I think just shows a little bit more care and consideration that it's not just performative diversity for the sake of being performative they're going to go through the work to make it kind of same with the Haldi scene that was really lovely they're going to go through the work and add these things that make it feel make it feel like they have um they have changed something for diversity, which is important, and they should do that, but they're going to commit to doing it properly, and I like that, right? I like that it feels like it was done intentionally, with care, and done properly. Now, as someone who's not, not Indian, I don't want to... Maybe it's been done horribly, and I'm just not aware, but at least from my perception of it, I can at least appreciate that it, it appears as though they tried really hard to make the change of the characters to be an Indian family and it really make that part of the show instead of just the, Hey, they were white in the books and they're Indian in the show and then do nothing else with that. And so I just, yeah, I like the Kathani Sharma bit 
for how romantic it was, but also for the added little depth of diversity. Then we get fireworks, we get promises, we got marriage. Kate says, or Anthony says, I think we finally see eye to eye to something on something. I put, I reckon y'all saw a pretty fucking eye to eye in that garden terrace. And then they're just making out with each other. And I was like, surely this is still scandalous. Like I know everyone watched the dance. I know they've just agreed to get married, but no one else knows that. Surely like someone pops around, like they're doing this outside with everyone else around. Like surely if someone goes like, wait, you're not allowed to do that. You can't just make out with people at the Featherington ball. I don't know. There's no consequences for any of these actions, but surely that makeout session was still scandalous. And now we are finally winding down our last deep dive for Bridgerton season two, at least the deep dives of the shows. We're going to do the book club. We got a lot of other stuff going on. Colin being a bro brings all the lads to the, um, to Will Mondridge's club. Like, Hey, you did me a huge favor. You warned me about Mr. Featherington. I'm repaying that favor. This club is run by an honorable man. And I told everybody that I love how Colin as a Bridgerton is like Anthony throwing around his wealth and influence to help somebody out. Even though if purchasing your way into college is slightly unethical in 2022, uh, you know what? It's how, it's how the system works. And within that system, Colin is being a bro to Will here. And I like that. We get the epilogue. I already talked about how I feel about the epilogue and, and you know, how I don't like using an epilogue to just show us things that you should have shown us in more detail. But while we're in the epilogue, I'm going to be super positive about it because in isolation, this episode, epilogue was great. Um, I like that we're back to Pall Mall. We're back, on, we're back at Aubrey Hall. It's just the main cast of characters. They've been traveling for six months and are still this attracted to each other. Not that, not that, not that people should be unattracted to each other after six months. That is not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, you know, this is real. They've been traveling for six months and they're still doing it like a couple times each morning before they finally join their family for Pall Mall. And then like, this is just a, like Anthony is in a permanent state of refractory period. That is where he's at. That's what it seems like to me is that Anthony is either having sex with his wife or in a refractory period of some sort. And there's no middle ground, um, much like Daphne and the Duke were in season one. They, they walk down to Pall Mall and they start like kissing each other's necks and stuff at Pall Mall, which is weird, but I'm kind of for We just again, we didn't get enough time with them kind of being married and engaged and stuff. So this epilogue is trying to make up a little too much ground a little too quickly. It was a little weird how much they were like just making out with each other instead of playing Pall Mall. They have a fun, cute conversation about the dog and about how, you know, you didn't inherit the dog by marriage or whatever. And then Kate's like, you're gonna have to take that up with the dog. And that's pretty funny. And then Daphne is looking at them like making out instead of playing Pall Mall and goes, yep, this is still me every single day. And it's glorious and I'm happy for Anthony. So it was it's nice to get Daphne's like smile and seal of approval here at the end of the episode. And you know what? That is it. That is all the deep dives for season two have concluded man what a journey we have all been on uh we are going to do bonus episodes we are going to do a book club so don't unsubscribe from the feed or anything we, we have lots going on here uh, as we approach season three i did just want to say a big thank you for sticking with me through this journey i i know that listening to like a 27 year old white dude you know talk about bridgerton is probably not what your first idea of a fun podcast would have been but i'm glad you made it through everything to the final episode here i i hope that I've been able to provide you mostly with entertainment, you know, good analysis of Bridgerton is kind of separate to the, the idea that I kind of want you to be able to tune out of the world 
for a couple of hours each week and just enjoy the podcast instead of all the other shit going on in your life. So thank you so much for being along this journey. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the podcasts in this deep dive, uh, please go and subscribe to them to uh, give them five-star reviews to tell your friends, your family about them. If they watch Bridgerton and they like podcasts, word of mouth is how a lot of these podcasts travel. Uh, I appreciate you guys so much. If you want to stick around in the Facebook group, that link is in the description below. If you want to head over to the Patreon to get early access to all of the book club stuff that's going to be going on, that link is in the description below. We have a Twitter at Let's Dive Deep. Don't forget to send your thoughts to Let's Dive Deep Pod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, not just to this episode, but to all seven of the other deep dives as well, and the bonus episodes we have done with Mia. I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you for listening, and we will see you in the next one.